We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Seattle's a great place to visit because it has, I guess you could say, a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything. Where a child grows up can have a big impact on how well they do later in life. Good schools, safe streets, better environment, all that can make a difference. It's one reason the government has tried to use housing subsidies to encourage low-income families to move to better neighborhoods. Past efforts have fallen short, but as NPR's Pam Fessler reports, a new experiment in the Seattle area is showing promise. Monica Rose, a single mother of a 10-year-old, knows how destructive it can be not to have stable housing as a child. So I think I went to like 14 different schools and I dropped out in the seventh grade. She eventually went back, but it's been a long haul since. Monica Rose asked that we not use her full name because of a domestic abuse issue. She's now 32 and she and her daughter have also had to move a lot staying with family and friends, even in shelters, as rents around Seattle have soared to among the highest in the nation. But that's about to change. Mine's going to be right there. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Any day now, they're moving into a new two-bedroom apartment in northeast Seattle. She shows me a picture on her phone of a red brick building, Old Navy barracks being converted into affordable housing. It's going to be really exciting to decorate our home, to be able to invite people inside and have it, you know, clear and warm and welcoming. Monica Rose is benefiting from what many low-income families say is like winning the lottery. She has a housing voucher, or government subsidy, which covers all of her rent over 30% of her income. Almost two million families now get such vouchers. But there's a problem. Most end up using them in low-income neighborhoods, where their children are more likely to stay poor. Now a group of researchers from Harvard, Johns Hopkins, and elsewhere has teamed up with the Seattle and King County housing authorities to try to break that cycle. 
yeah, the mall is all this right here. So shopping is really easy and you're like a minute off of the freeway. So transportation-wise, that's a big selling point for families. Part of the experiment, funded by the Gates and Sergo Foundations, involves hiring so-called navigators. They help voucher holders find apartments in what are identified as high-opportunity neighborhoods, places where low-income children have done well as adults, earning more, going to college, having fewer teen births. Right now, navigator Sarah Bergeback is showing her colleagues around one such area in Seattle called Northgate. It's a mixed-income neighborhood with a lot to offer, like mass transit, a children's hospital, and a community center with a preschool program and other activities. Um, yeah, we'll get out for a couple of minutes, so wherever it is. They have tons of family programming. Some of it is like you pay, it's really affordable usually. It's like $40 for a basketball camp or something. But a lot of their the navigators take voucher holders on tours of these neighborhoods. They also guide them through the difficult process of getting an apartment in a hot rental market, showing them how to sell themselves as good tenants, almost like a job interview. They also spend time cultivating landlords, who are often reluctant to accept voucher holders, even though it's required by law. Navigators tell the landlords that with vouchers, the rent is guaranteed. The program also helps families with expenses like moving costs. So far, it seems to be working. The initial results, released today, show that those receiving this extra help are almost four times as likely to move to high-opportunity areas. It costs about $1,700 extra per family, but researcher Stephanie DeLuca of Johns Hopkins says it should more than pay for itself. In terms of lifetime earnings and taxes that are paid by children who grow up in higher opportunity neighborhoods. In fact, they're expected to earn $183,000 more on average and hopefully won't need government aid like their parents. DeLuca says one key finding is that poor families don't need that big a push to move. What we saw in Seattle wasn't that they didn't know that some neighborhoods might be better than others. It's just the concept that it was possible for them to move there. No. Everywhere, wonderful storages for everything and lots of space to... Gregory Vodolazov and his wife were pleasantly surprised that their voucher got them a three-bedroom apartment in Bellevue, one of Seattle's most affluent suburbs. The unit is open and bright with new appliances at a rent of $2,600 a month. It looks expensive. It looks rich and comfortable and everything. We didn't expect to getting that, actually. The couple immigrated from Russia and have two sons, ages nine and three. The oldest has autism, one reason that this area, with schools and medical facilities that cater to children with special needs, means so much to them. What it really offers, though, is hope for their children's future. It's opportunities, because I feel it every day in the air, right in the air, and it's for every member of my family. And that's the thing about this program. The researchers are also looking for clues about what it is that makes one neighborhood more promising than the next. It's schools and support systems, to be sure, but also something else. Samra Idris, a Libyan refugee who lives nearby with her husband and three small boys, says people in Bellevue expect to succeed. You know, the kids here is different. The neighborhood here is different. They're smart. The family here looks support the kids, like thinking about the kids here. And are already saving for college. It's nothing like their last neighborhood in southern King County, where kids routinely dropped out of school. 
Stephanie DeLuca admits there are still lots of questions. This project involves a few hundred families. But if it grows, will landlords and neighbors resist as they have in some other communities? And what about the neighborhoods left behind? What happens to them? People shouldn't have to move to opportunity. We should be able to make it. Um, how we achieve creating opportunity in place, that's the question we haven't resolved yet. And indeed, almost half of the families in this experiment decided to stay in low-income areas, even when told their kids would do better somewhere else. Many wanted to stay closer to jobs or to family and friends. Even Monica Rose admits that as excited as she is about moving to a more upscale area, she's also a bit nervous. I'm just not sure how it's going to go. If there's, you know, professionals that have a certain income and then, for instance, me who has like virtually almost nothing, I do wonder how the cultures are going to mix. Although she thinks on balance, the move will be good for her daughter even if it's years before anyone knows for sure. In the meantime, the Seattle Project will continue and likely expand to other cities as part of a national effort to find better ways to help poor families succeed. Pam Fessler, NPR News, Seattle. And we should note that the Gates Foundation is a financial supporter of NPR. In search of Delbert Africa, move member Delbert Africa is missing. How can that be? Africa, at 68 years, is the oldest MOVE member of the August 8, 1978 prisoners, and he has been missing since Wednesday, July 31st. Delbert wrote a sick call slip recently, complaining of swelling in his lower extremities. When medical staff saw him, they promptly ordered him transported to a hospital. But what hospital? No one knows. Delbert's state name is Delbert Orr, O-R-R, and move people look at his present situation and remember with alarm the case of Phil Africa, who also went to a hospital and never returned. Move people have good reason to be distrustful of hospitals. For those who don't remember or can't picture Delbert, think of the 1978 MOVE confrontation in Philadelphia. If you think of the images from that event, you'll remember a well-muscled man, bare from the waist up, standing with his arms raised before heavily armed cops. That iconic image of a man, his arms spread out from his sides, is Delbert Africa. The MOVE organization has requested its supporters to call DOC Chief John Wetzel at 717-728-2573 and demand that Delbert be allowed to speak with his family and loved ones. Again, Delbert's records identify him as Delbert Orr, O-R-R. His prison number is AM 4985. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me, and I swear to God you lose it. 
Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Michael Brown's 2014 death at the hands of a Ferguson police officer helped paint a clear picture of the troubled relationship between the police and the African-American community. It also brought to light the abuses in the municipal court system that could follow interactions with police. St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lippman reports on what's changed in that system five years after Brown was killed. It's the first Thursday of the month, and that means morning court in the city of Normandy. The 50 or so defendants wait in the city council chambers, talking quietly amongst themselves or looking at their phones. A slideshow outlining their rights in court and court procedures flashes on the wall. Court begins promptly at 9 a.m. One by one, defendants approach the podium. Judge Jennifer Fisher reads the charges, asks them how they want to plead, and tells them the amount they have to pay. If they don't have the money, she gives them time to get it together. Attorney Eric Banks came to court for a client with a speeding ticket. After Michael Brown's murder, the system is significantly kinder and gentler than it used to be. It's still expensive to get pulled over, Banks says. His client will pay more than $200 in fines and fees. They're getting their money, but they're getting it with um, preserving the people's dignity by and large. The municipal court practices revealed after Brown's death were problematic at best and unconstitutional at worst, says Michael John Voss, a co-founder of the legal advocacy group Arch City Defenders. Before 2014, he says, the courts were barely more than cash cows for their cities. People were being locked up because of their inability to pay fines and fees and were being held indefinitely until uh, possibly going in front of judge, sometimes weeks, sometimes longer than that. And while that was happening, the collateral consequences of losing one's job, uh, losing one's housing, uh, basically furthering uh, one's poverty occurs. A number of the fees, he says, weren't even authorized by state law. Voss acknowledges there's been a move away from what he calls policing for profit. He says revenue from fines and fees is down 78 percent in St. Louis County since 2014, and state court data show a large drop in the number of municipal court cases. 966,000 filed statewide in 2018, compared to 1.6 million in 2014. Some of that shift was driven by legislation. Senate Bill 5, approved in 2015, capped the amount of municipal court revenue at 20 percent of a city's budget. Defendants had to appear in front of a judge within 48 hours, and they had to be given a payment plan they could afford. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt led the charge for Senate Bill 5 as a Republican state senator from Glendale. He says it's become a national model. There's a lot of reflection, certainly, that that everybody's going to encounter here with the five-year anniversary of Ferguson. But one of the things I think people should be particularly proud of is that Missouri did come together and enacted the most sweeping municipal reform in our state's history, and it has improved the lives of people. Other reforms came from the court system itself. The Missouri Supreme Court made it clear that municipal courts were courts and could not be overseen by the city government. Courts also had to be open for a minimum of 30 hours a week, and defendants had to be informed of their rights. Groups like Arch City Defenders also used lawsuits to create change. Voss says the organization has won more than $8 million in damages and forced cities to forgive about $5.5 million in debt. The reforms that happened uh, post-Ferguson that were voluntary are good, uh, and we applaud those voluntary reforms. 
at any point in time, they could backslide. And with a federal judgment, that won't happen. Sustainable reform will take political turnover, Voss says. And legislation and lawsuits haven't done anything to change who is ending up in municipal court. You can go to Ferguson and see that the, the lines are down a little bit. You can see that, that, but it's still, again, predominantly, even though the town's only 67% black, mostly 99% of the population that's going into court is black. The latest statewide numbers from the attorney general's office bear that out. Black drivers are still stopped, searched, and arrested at higher rates than white drivers. Schmidt says his office just collects the data and says they don't always paint the clearest picture. For example, he says they don't include the hometowns of the people who are pulled over. Regardless of their race, their gender, their creed, um, whatever it is, people deserve to be treated fairly under the law. That's really important. Policy solutions can, can come from that, but, but I think making sure that people have the most accurate information is important. Overall, he says he's proud of the way good people came together over the last five years to change a broken system. I'm Rachel Lippman, St. Louis Public Radio. See, it used to be we could beat up minorities and nobody cared. It's the reason a lot of us joined the force. Hey, Mitch, you want to go down and arrest some homeless people but not be able to beat up any minorities? No, thank you. Yeah, no, I think we're good. Police in Galveston, uh, Galveston, Texas, they are apologizing after a photo went viral. And I want to show you this picture because it actually shows two police officers leading a handcuffed black man down the street by a rope. This is important. The man had been arrested on a misdemeanor criminal trespassing charge, so not murder. And uh, police confirmed they attached the man's handcuffs to what they're calling a line. Here's part of the Galveston uh, police chief. His name is Vernon Hale. This is part of his statement. He says, first and foremost, I must apologize to Mr. Neely, that's the man in the photo, for this unnecessary embarrassment. Although this is a trained technique and best practice in some scenarios, I believe our officers showed poor judgment in this instance and could have waited for a transport unit at the location of the arrest. His statement went on to say that uh, officers then identified in the in the statement as P. Broche and A. Smith. That's what they're identifying them as. We don't even get first names, but saying they didn't have malicious intentions during the arrest. Hale said the department has changed the policy to prevent this technique from being used again. And of course, as you can imagine, activists are not happy with just this this statement. Mm -hmm. Um, Civil rights organizations like the Anti-Defamation League condemn the actions of the officer and call for an investigation into the Galveston Police Department's policies and practices. Leon Phillips is uh, president of Galveston Coalition for Justice and did say he was happy with the chief immediately ending this practice, but still wants to see the officers punished. Saying with the climate in the country today, I would hate to see six months or three years down the road what kind of judgment these same officers would make in a worse scenario. Hmm. Phillips also worried about the lasting impact the photo could have on the city's tourist-heavy economy and questioned why the officers didn't wait on the scene. Stay there with him instead of humiliating him. And now you've humiliated the whole city of Galveston because everybody who sees it is going to have an opinion. Phillips, of course, also said the image reminded him of racist images from the 1920s. He said he didn't know the officers personally, but the optics of the photo was shocking. And a lot of this is people saying that um, the officers should have waited for a transport. And I think I just want to just say that they were arresting this man for trespassing. Mm-hmm. The officers can use their judgment and not arrest a man for yeah. walking onto a property that he's not allowed to be on. They could have just decided to not arrest him, yeah. let alone go all the way to dragging him down the road. Yeah. Like, uh- I, I covered this yesterday, so I was familiar with it uh, on the breakdown video. There's a couple of things. So the man has a history of, of mental illness as well. The officers have have ran into him on several occasions, so it's not the first time. And I think that actually bodes 
on the opposite favor then because then they're familiar with them so they know uh, how to handle the situation but it seems by doing this practice it was more so uh, an act of dehumanization which I constantly talk about when I discuss uh, issues in the way that police uh, handle situations right because there's this overall the- thesis that police needs further training, which I think they do. But it, in time, and there's so many examples. I've covered so many of these cases now that you see that they can show restraint and they can show ways to not so much dehumanize people. I mean, how often do we see white mass shooters handled with restraint, even though they pose deadly fear for their lives, if that is the narrative to go to. I mean, the latest example in El Paso is another one, which kind of is why I think the reaction to this was so prominent, because just a few cities over in El Paso, we've never seen anything like this as humiliating and dehumanizing as this, even though the man shot up at Walmart and killed 22 people. people. Uh, And I know there was a few activist friends of mine who were posting it side by side with the image of Eric Garner saying, this is a man who was allegedly selling cigarettes, this is a man who just shot up at Walmart. So it seems like there's this disparity Uh, in policing and that's why images like this do cause such a reaction because this man was posing no such threat to the officers and instead of waiting for a patrol car they decided in their judgment was to walk him for eight blocks um, with this rope tied to him which of course stokes racist imagery i wouldn't say 1920s i'd go back to 18 19 18 uh, back in, in slave days where it looked like slave catchers were marching someone down the street so Poor judgment, Michael. So not only do you have the race history, but it shouldn't be a trained technique at all. I don't want to see white people being dragged along by a rope on a horse either. I don't want to see anybody going through that. To give you a sense of scale, Donald Trump accused of very credibly of two felonies, including obstruction of justice and campaign finance violations. That was a misdemeanor, a much lower charge. Imagine they drag Trump through like that. So no way, but they do it to this poor guy who's mentally ill and happened to wander into a lawn. It's dehumanizing, horrible, and should never happen to any person in America again. This question, why is this stuff happening? The New York Times article, I mean editorial today. The Trump effect. See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. The Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink, under, under Trump, on the brink of fascism. New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is end-stage white supremacy. See, it's, I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. Saturday, a gunman in El Paso, Texas, killed 22 people at a Walmart. Early yesterday morning, a shooter killed nine people in Dayton, Ohio. And today, President Trump addressed the nation. We are outraged and sickened by this monstrous evil, the cruelty, the hatred, the malice, the bloodshed, and the terror. Police are investigating whether the alleged shooter in El Paso was inspired by white nationalism and a hatred of Latino immigrants. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. These sinister ideologies must be defeated. 
Hate has no place in America. That kind of language is out of character for this president. And here to talk about it is White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Hey, Franco. Hi. First, what else did President Trump have to say this morning? And, and what kinds of steps did he suggest to possibly prevent future mass shootings? Well, he gave several clearly scripted remarks. And as we know, there can be a big difference between Trump when he's scripted and when he's on Twitter or at a rally. This morning, Trump said the United States needs to focus on mental illness. He's also talking about so-called red flag laws that are designed to prevent the mentally ill from purchasing guns. Mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger not the gun. He also didn't talk about any bans on assault weapons, which is what many Democrats are calling for. And he had suggested more aggressive steps on Twitter that that he did not mention in the comments this morning. Yes. And that comes even though he tweeted a few hours before the speech that he wanted strong background checks for gun buyers. He didn't mention any specifics on how those checks would work. He also talked about tighter controls on the Internet, social media, and on violent video games. As you've often seen in the past, Franco, when he gives these kinds of speeches from a teleprompter after a national tragedy, soon after he will get on Twitter or go to a rally and revert to insulting people who he feels has wronged him. So how much value is there really in a speech like the one he gave this morning? Yes, he's got a long track record of making formal statements on a teleprompter when he was talking about Charlottesville. In Charlottesville, Virginia. That are very unifying. They're also conciliatory. We must rediscover the bonds of love and loyalty that bring us together as Americans. But then going back on them a few days later. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. For the last few weeks, one of the top stories out of this White House has been President Trump's racist comments towards people of color. And Democratic presidential candidates have argued that this president is part of the problem. Let's listen to what just a few of them have said since these shootings over the weekend. There is a measure of responsibility that you just can't get away from when you have. Uh, you we know, also case have to acknowledge that we have a president of the United States who uses the microphone in a way that is about sowing hate and division in our country. He has embraced white nationalists. He has encouraged white nationalists. Those Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, others have made similar remarks. Franco, is there a risk that the president's comments will make a situation like this worse. It's true that President Trump has used incendiary language, especially about immigrants and people of color. It goes back to the first days of his campaign when he rode down the golden escalator of Trump Tower. He used very angry language when describing particularly Mexicans. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. And he's really never toned down that language ever since. We've seen it again and again. We see it when he talks about the caravan of migrants coming to the United States. At this very moment, large, well-organized caravans of migrants are marching toward our southern border. Some people call it an invasion. It's like an invasion. We saw it when he didn't stop the chance about send her back when talking about a minority congresswoman. Earlier this year, he was at a rally in the Florida panhandle. But how do you stop these people? You can't. There's no... When someone yelled out that shooting migrants was a way to stop them. That's only in the panhandle you can get away with that statement. Even in formal Oval Office settings, he's focused on that same message that immigrants are murderers. Over the last several years, I've met with dozens of families whose loved ones were stolen by illegal immigration. I've held the hands of the weeping mothers and embraced the grief 
stricken fathers. So sad. So terrible. And in the past, when racism and white nationalism have come up, Trump has downplayed the threat. This past March, when he was asked directly, do you see today white nationalism as a rising threat? His answer was, I don't don't really. really. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. Franco, you've given us such a long list of examples. What does the White House say when you present them with all of these quotes from the last couple of years? One thing that Trump and others in the White House say, it's the shooters who are responsible for their actions, not Trump's words. This week, acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney said critics are trying to score political points off the tragedy. I get the fact that some people don't approve of the, of the verbiage the president uses. I get that, all right? People are going to hear what they want to hear. My guess is this guy's in that parking lot in El Paso, Texas, in that Walmart doing this, even if Hillary Clinton is president. Look, the White House and the Trump administration are in a bind in some ways. When Trump doesn't respond to attack, he's accused of looking the other way or being sympathetic with the assailants. But even when he criticizes his extremism, as he did this morning, he's accused of not going far enough. People have criticized the president's tone on these issues since before he started running for president. At some point, is it just naive to imagine that he's going to be a different person than the person he has shown himself to be? Pushing the envelope has worked for President Trump. It wasn't long after he launched his campaign that he was at the top of the Republican polls. His supporters always talk about how he tells it like it is. And truth be told, Trump likes to keep both supporters and opponents riled up. And if you think about the recent tweets about the four minority congresswomen or the tweets about Congressman Elijah Cummings and the, quote, rodent-infested city of Baltimore, we see it again and again. It's NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez speaking with us from the White House. Thanks a lot, Franco. Thank you. That's why we have to think as black people. Stop singing and dancing and start thinking. Thinking and reading. I say reading is more important than watching TV. And not getting addicted to looking at those small uh, iPhone screens. See, where you were getting custom to looking there in a narrow space as opposed to paying attention broadly to what is happening around you. See, and people are getting addicted. That's why some people tragically are getting hit by automobiles because they won't even stop looking long enough to look and see which way the traffic is flowing. Today's white racial extremists rely on technology. They use social media to recruit and radicalize to ensure that their movement has a future. But many young extremists, including some who've carried out violent attacks, seem just as interested in the movement's past. NPR's Hannah Alam covers domestic extremism. She's with us now to talk about how old racist books and other artifacts influence white nationalists of the digital age, including, it appears, a suspect in the mass shooting in El Paso. Welcome to the studio. Hi. So what kind of historic materials are we talking about? How are they being used today? 
Well, there's a whole canon of white supremacist literature and theory from the 19th century, early KKK pamphlets, speeches, the racist eugenics writings of the 1920s, biographies of prominent white supremacists like David Duke, and translated literature from, from Europe and abroad. So white supremacist forums often have recommended reading lists, and sometimes they're really obscure titles, and then there are some that have become quote-unquote classics of the genre in the eyes of white nationalists. And uh, one example of, of that is a French novel from 1973 that lays out so-called replacement theory, it's sometimes called white genocide theory, this idea that this tidal wave of immigration is coming to wipe out the white race. And uh, that theory, it was revived in an even more recent book, um, is woven into the manifestos that we've seen out of the Norway mass shooting, the attack on Muslims in New Zealand, and now in the purported manifesto of the El Paso suspect. Um, Kathleen Ballou teaches history at the University of Chicago. She's dug through a lot of this old material for her book, Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. She says there is an incredible trove of information available. It turns out that the white power movement left behind a huge paper archive. Um, This is a movement where people are really interested in printing periodicals, and these range from official and polished-looking newspapers and magazines all the way down to like hand-drawn zines that are made um, and then just photocopied at the local grocery store. Why do people go looking for them and looking for them online? Well, according to extremism scholars, they go looking at them for many of the same reasons people become radicalized in the first place. They want a sense of belonging to a greater cause, something with history and a tradition of rebellion. Some of the same justifications we saw Islamist extremists using when they were cherry-picking obscure old texts to justify their own violent causes. Um, I spoke with Art Gibson, a professor at the University of Dayton in Ohio, who's interviewed white racial extremists for 30 years as part of his research. And he says, sure, they can find the stuff online, but there's a point of pride attached to owning a physical copy. And he says extremists he's interviewed sometimes show up with rare books, sometimes autographed um, books with, uh, with the names of prominent racists. For the members of this movement, they believe they're reading the forbidden material, the forbidden books, the forbidden newsletters. And why should we give this our attention? Well, in the words of Gibson, the professor I spoke to, he said, we ignore it at our peril. He said we can dismiss their ideologies, but to understand this brand of extremism and ultimately to prevent its spread, you have to understand what they take seriously. That's NPR's Hannah Alam. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now, a word from the president. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster, getting voted into the White House. President Trump has been visiting Dayton and El Paso for the first time since the mass shootings in the two cities at the weekend, which cost over 30 lives. His supporters claimed he was treated like a rock star when he visited a hospital in Dayton, but protesters there called for tighter gun controls. Other politicians also weighed in. At a campaign rally, the Democratic presidential contender Joe Biden criticized Mr. Trump's earlier statement condemning the attacks. This president has fanned the flames of white supremacy in this nation. His low energy, vacant-eyed mouthing of the words written for him, condemning white supremacists this week, I don't believe fooled anyone. President Trump responded by tweeting that Mr. Biden's speech was so boring, apparently whilst in the air between Dayton and El Paso. I spoke to our correspondent Sophie Long during Mr. Trump's visit to El Paso, and I asked her how things looked there. 
Well, President Trump arrived here in El Paso in a boiling Texas heat. He's currently at the hospital visiting uh, first responders and victims, survivors and their families. Now, reporters aren't actually with the president as he does that, but his press secretary has told them that people were very warm towards him, everybody received him very well, and everybody was very, very excited to see him. So that's what we're getting from the press secretary. The president and first lady are still at the hospital, I believe. I am just at the Walmart superstore where a huge sea of flowers has been been growing over the four days since this shooting took place on Saturday. 22 people killed here. Emotions here, Mark, are very high indeed. Uh, even in the hours before President Trump arrived here in El Paso, I spoke to people and asked them whether they welcomed his trip. One woman told me said she said she thought it was absolutely vile, disgusting. She said that this situation happened because of the uh, situation created by his rhetoric and his open racism. She said he is not welcome here and he is not my president. At the same time, though, I've spoken to people who are, who are very pleased that the president is coming and say that he should come. Something really terrible happened here. This community has been shaken and that he should come and pay his respects and that they welcome him. Of course, you've got all the people in between as well. A lot of people here are very conflicted. They say to me that, yes, they want the president to come, but it's unfortunate that it's this president and it's unfortunate that he said the things he had. Now, a lot of people here echo what you heard from Joe Biden there, including Beto O'Rourke. He is another Democratic presidential hopeful. He left the campaign trail as soon as this happened on Saturday and came to El Paso. This is his hometown, and he's been going to vigils over the past four days and he's been very clear about the fact that he believes that Trump's harsh rhetoric on immigration has helped create a situation in which this happened. You've got to remember that El Paso has a huge uh, Hispanic majority. It's more than 80% Hispanic, this population. So a lot of people here feel very sensitive about what President Trump has said in the past and, of course, also about his visit. Sophie Long in El Paso. Hitler had the supreme fascist state. And what was he worried about in Europe and in Germany? He was worried about white genetic annihilation. And now for the view from the second city the president visited today. We return to El Paso, where I'm joined by Ileana Holguin. She's the chairwoman of the Democratic Party in El Paso County and is also an immigration attorney. Uh, Ms. Holguin, thank you very much for being here. Before we get to the president's visit and all of the, the protest and the concern over that, I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about how the Latino community in El Paso is doing. Well, um... As you can imagine, everyone is still, I think, in a little bit of shock and disbelief. Um, no one can ever believe that anything this horrific can happen in their community. El Paso has always been a very warm, welcoming, friendly community, and we've always prided ourselves on that. So to have someone drive 10, 11 hours specifically to carry out an act of hate has just been absolutely shocking and unbelievable to all of us. But. One thing that we all know is that El Paso is extremely resilient, and we know that we're going to get through this together. When I was there a couple of days ago, I heard a lot of what you're saying, a lot of fear and anguish and sadness. Uh, several people mentioned to me that all of a sudden they think about their daily lives in a different way. They think about going to the store differently or dropping their kids at daycare differently. Are you hearing the same thing from people? Yes, I am. Um, people are very afraid. Um, we, we know that one of the motivations of um, this person coming to our community was specifically because of his hatred 
of Latinos, um, and, and we're 85% Latino. Um, so we know that our community was targeted specifically because of who we are, because of our identity. And knowing that um, is certainly uh, making people afraid that we might see something like this happen again. Another um, white supremacist decide to come to our community um, to cause harm to us. So yes, I've also been hearing that, um, that you know people are afraid to do things that normally no one would ever think to be afraid of, to go out in, in public and in open spaces. And certainly that's, that's not a way that any community should have to live. I know that you wrote a letter to the president in advance of his visit saying, please don't come. Can you explain why you didn't want him to visit? Yeah, um, you know, El Pasoans right now, we're still trying to figure out how to heal. We're still grieving. Um, we're going to be facing having 22 funerals here in the next um, few days. Um, and many of us really hold the president responsible um, in a lot of ways for this increase in, um, uh, you know, the demonization of, of immigrant communities. And a lot of the same rhetoric that the president uses on a regular basis in his Twitter account, um, in his rallies, you heard some of those same phrases being used by this person in that essay that he posted just minutes before he opened fire here in El Paso. So really, we feel that the president has to acknowledge that his language has played a, a role in what happened. His, his words have consequences. And here in El Paso, we, we learned that on Saturday that um, his words have very, very severe consequences that can change a community. Um, and so we didn't want him to come while we were um, in this process of, of grieving and healing. Uh, and until he acknowledges that he has to change the way he talks about immigrants and immigrant communities and people of color, um, he has to recognize that his language is, is what's doing us harm. And Saturday was just a manifestation of that. I mean, the president today was asked that specific question, do you think your rhetoric is contributing to this? And he said, no, 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 my words have not contributed to this. And many of his supporters would argue no one but the shooter, nobody forced the gun into that man's hands. Nobody forced him to drive 600 miles down and commit this violence. But you really do believe that the president sets the table that causes this kind of thing to happen. Yeah, and that's true. We're not saying that the president somehow um, is the one that told this person to do this horrific thing. But the president's language definitely contributes to just the, um, the divisiveness, the demonization, the way he talks about communities like ours, it, um, he stokes that hatred and that anger that we know that white supremacists already feel towards community like ours. So he may not have directly played a role in putting the gun into the shooter's hand, but he certainly encourages uh, people with white supremacist views. He certainly condones it. Um, we saw the same thing happen with Charlottesville, where he tried to somehow, yes, condemn white supremacists on one hand, but at the same time say that, not, that you know not everyone's that bad. He he seems to can't just come out and denounce white supremacy, and that's what we need him to do, because if he sounds like he's condoning it, if the president of the United States sounds like he's condoning it, then of course we're going to see physical manifestations of that, like what happened here in El Paso. All right, Ileana Holguin from El Paso, thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine.
Who gets to decide the limits of speech on the internet? The shooting in El Paso, Texas, has brought new urgency to that question. The suspect is thought to have posted a screed against Hispanic immigrants on 8chan, an online message board. After the shooting, 8chan lost the support of a crucial network services company. NPR's Martin Costi reports on the debate over policing internet speech. Curbing online hatred is a thorny problem in a country with America's strong free speech tradition. Here's Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren being put on the spot on CNN just one day after the tragedy in El Paso. Should these sites be shut down, Senator? Look, this is one where I'm very nervous about government intervention in this area. And yet we have to be thinking about public safety here. Since the 90s, the government has generally left the job of policing free speech to companies. And at first, that suited the tech world with its libertarian leanings. Twitter, for instance, used to call itself the free speech wing of the free speech party. But lately, there's been a reckoning. I think everyone's getting smart to the fact that, you know, the Internet is not all rainbows and unicorns. Ashkan Sultani is former chief technology officer for the Federal Trade Commission. He says Internet companies now feel more pressure to take responsibility for what others publish, even companies that just provide network services. Sites like 8chan depend on companies that can handle big surges in demand and can also fend off attacks from hostile hackers. There's only a handful of those available, right? So sites that feed a lot of traffic or sites that are kind of divisive and prone to attacks will need a service like Cloudflare or Akamai or some other hosting platform that can mitigate attacks. The company that 8chan relied on was Cloudflare, which saw no choice but to drop them as a client after the shooting, and 8chan's had trouble finding a replacement. But Cloudflare didn't sound happy about the situation. In a blog post, the CEO, Matthew Prince, wrote, quote, We continue to feel incredibly uncomfortable about playing the role of content arbiter and do not plan to exercise it often. The household names of the Internet are more used to this role of speech police. Facebook and YouTube are just too visible to the public to sidestep the responsibility. Kate Klonick is an associate professor at St. John's University School of Law. All of them, all of them have content moderation. Etsy decides every day whether or not it's going to let people sell Nazi paraphernalia. That is like hand-stitched Nazi paraphernalia. Airbnb has, you know, people post art in their homes and then they put it on the internet and all of a sudden it's speech. Klonick has researched the company's struggles to reflect the values of the people who use them. There's not really always a right answer and the norms are changing incredibly rapidly. Uh, And they're not changing the same way in every space. Some conservatives say the enforced norms are trending liberal. Republican Senator Josh Hawley has proposed legislation that would audit the impartiality of social media platforms. But leftists have been tripped up by changing norms, too. Take the case of Canadian feminist writer Megan Murphy. 
Last year, she was booted from Twitter, apparently because she refuses to refer to transgender women as women. You know, I really see it as kind of a form of bullying. You know, a man says, I'm a woman, you have to say that I'm a woman in public. It just seems like a really dangerous road to go down. I applaud the suspension. That's Morgan Auger, a transgender activist in British Columbia, who says Twitter was right to silence Murphy's, quote, harassment. This is a person who is using social media to incite discrimination against people that could get her in trouble in Canada if she were to do it here. That's another complicating factor for social media companies. Most of their customers are now outside the U.S., where free speech laws can often be more restrictive. There's also the problem of uneven enforcement. Platforms depend on users to flag abuses, so organized constituencies are sometimes better at getting things taken down. I think that there's been immense social and political pressure to silence certain ideas, and it just isn't working. Bill Ottman is co-founder of Minds, an upstart social media company. He believes content moderation should not be left up to the company alone. We recently rolled out something really important, which is a jury system. If someone on Minds feels unfairly censored by the moderators, he says that user can appeal to a flash jury of 12 other randomly selected users. And eventually, we would consider moving the jury to the initial decision. And, and then you really have decentralized governance in action. Given tech companies' discomfort in the role of speech police, ideas like this may catch on, especially if the companies think they can offload some of the responsibility. Facebook, for instance, says it's planning a new panel of independent outsiders to review its content moderation, something the tech media have already dubbed Facebook Supreme Court. Martin Costi, NPR News, El Paso. Oh, he is a voluntary, free-spirited, open-ended program of procreative racial deconstruction. Everybody just got to keep fucking everybody till they're all the same color. Again, because I don't know what to do. A family's home left in shambles. Now detectives in Wayne County, fire investigators and the FBI are trying to figure out who's behind an explosion that is also being treated as a hate crime. This is just terrible. Early this morning, an arsonist blew up the home of an interracial couple and racial slurs were spray painted on their property. Bob Jones live in the village of Sterling right now. And Bob, there is a large reward in this disturbing crime. Well, investigators were out here most of the day today, beginning to sift through all of this rubble left behind from the explosion. They are looking for any possible answers. The heartbroken couple who lived here also trying to figure out who did this. Tonight, as you can see, a $5,000 reward is posted for information leading to the unknown arsonists who could also be looking at a federal hate crime. It's sickening to do this to somebody's home and not even know if they're home or not, you know? We could have been in there. Angela Fraze is heartbroken and frightened, not knowing where to go or what to think after an arsonist blew up her home around 1245 this morning. The place she's called home for 23 years with her husband, Brad, reduced to pieces, most of their belongings destroyed. I got sick twice, that's what happened. It was like, this didn't just happen. I don't understand it. The back of it is on fire and it's just melting off. 
A neighbor captured video of flames shooting out of the house on the normally peaceful Spruce Street in the village of Sterling. And when the fire was out, another startling discovery. Detectives believe the arsonist also spray-painted the interracial couple's garage with racial slurs, which News 5 has blurred. We're still doing this, you know, this hatred stuff. Like, come on. Can't everybody get along? Next door, Crystal Pastorchek also on edge because her cars and garage also spray painted. It's scary. It's, I, I really don't, I have no idea what to say at this point. Like, there's so many emotions and anxiety. It's just ma mainly anxiety. Angela and Brad have been staying at a hotel since July after a small accidental electrical fire. The Sterling Fire Department returned to the home yesterday afternoon after they say someone broke in, turned on the gas stove's burners, but it didn't blow up because the electricity and gas had been disconnected. It's not clear what sparked this morning's explosion, the case now being handled as a hate crime with the FBI involved. We are not going to tolerate that type of uh, activity and behavior here. Angela says she hasn't had any problems in the neighborhood and has no idea who did this or why. She's too scared to rebuild here. Hope for the best. No, put it in God's hand. Because that's all I can do now. Because... Because home's gone. Detectives also did a neighborhood canvas looking to see if anyone saw anything suspicious before this explosion tonight. There's still no suspects, and the couple is staying with relatives as they continue to wait for answers. Live in Wayne County tonight, Bob Jones, News 5. Tony Morrison, Master Writer, 1931-2019. Her name, Tony Morrison evokes something close to veneration for readers. Her books, most rooted in the savagery of the U.S. South during slavery days, gave names, faces, and voices to millions of nameless, faceless, and unheard African captives, especially women, with grace, eloquence, and fierce intelligence. Morrison plumbed the very depths of American history to recreate now iconic characters as living, breathing beings in her novels. Morrison wrote many novels, but perhaps her masterwork was Beloved, which was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1988. In her novel, she had the community's leading elder, Baby Shooks, tell the following about love to a gathering of men, women, and children. Here, in this here place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet in grass. Love it. Love it hard. Yonder, they do not love your flesh. They despise it. They don't love your eyes. They just as soon pick them out. No more do they love the skin on your back. Yonder, they flay it. And oh, my people, they do not love your hands. Those they only use, tie, bind, chop off and leave empty. Love your hands. Love them. Raise them up and kiss them 
touch others with them, pat them together, stroke them on your face, because they don't love that either. You gotta love it. You love your heart, for this is the prize. Tony Mars, born Chloe Anthony Wofford, on February 18, 1931, writes so passionately, so deeply, that tears escape my eyes when I read this dialogue of Baby Schultz. She was, for decades, a master writer. Moreover, she was one hell of an editor, for she edited for Random House when she worked on Revolutionary Suicide by a man named Huey P. Newton, the co-founder of the Black Panther Party. Tony Morrison, author of such books as Sula, 1973, The Bluest Eye, 1970, Song of Solomon, 1977, Tar Baby, 1981, Jazz, 1992, and Paradise, 1998, just to name a few. After 88 summers, returns to her beloved ancestors. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Toni Morrison, one of the nation's most influential writers, has died at the age of 88. She died Monday in the Bronx from complications of pneumonia. In 1993, Toni Morrison became the first African-American woman to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature. She also won a Pulitzer Prize in 1988 for her classic work, Beloved. Toni Morrison was born in Lorain, Ohio, in 1931. She did not publish her first novel, The Bluest Eye, until she was 39 years old. She wrote it while taking care of her two young sons as a single mother and juggling a day job as a book editor at Random House. As an editor, she's widely credited with helping widen the literary stage for African Americans and feminists. Much of Morrison's writing focused on the female black experience in America. Her writing style honored the rhythms of black oral tradition. Her work was deeply concerned with race and history, especially the sin of transatlantic slavery and the potentially restorative power of community. In 2012, President Obama awarded Toni Morrison the Presidential Medal of Freedom. On Tuesday, President Obama said, quote, Toni Morrison was a national treasure. Her writing was not just beautiful, but meaningful, a challenge to our conscience and a call to greater empathy. Her friend Oprah Winfrey said Tuesday, quote, she was our conscience, our seer, our truth teller. She was a magician with language who understood the power of words. She used them to roil us, to wake us, to educate us, and help us grapple with our deepest wounds and try to comprehend them. In a moment, we'll be joined by three remarkable writers who knew Toni Morrison well—Angela Davis, Sonia Sanchez, and Nikki Giovanni. But first, we turn to the trailer, to the new documentary, Toni Morrison. The pieces I am. My grandfather bragged all the time that he had read the Bible. And it was illegal in his life to read. Ultimately, I knew 
that words have power. I wanted as many people who could hear my voice to understand the importance of her work. Get people to trust, that, oh, this is something safe, and then, bam, hit them with Toni Morrison. One of the earlier reviews says she's got a great talent. One day, she won't limit it to only writing about black people. Like, really, it's limiting for her to write about black people? to buy Toni Morrison. And then we began to teach her, and as a consequence, they had to pay attention. You know, you'd sick under the death of being labeled a black writer. I prefer it. Oh, I thought you probably were tired of it. Well, I'm tired of people asking the question. Oh, oh yes, of course. <laughs> I don't know where this woman's energy came from to raise two kids, to bring other people of color to the party, and also write these novels. Tony was an editor at Random House. Navigating a white male world was not threatening. It wasn't even interesting. I was more interesting than they were. And I wasn't afraid to show it. Suddenly, the canon wasn't the private property of white male writers. I throw this book across the room and then walk down the steps laughing. Like, you read Tony and you cry, but you gotta laugh. Texas Bureau of Corrections banned Paradise because it might incite a riot. And I thought, how powerful is that? <laughs> when Toni Morrison published Beloved, it was an extraordinary turning point. We can never think about slavery in the same way. A friend of mine called me up early in the morning and said, Tony, you won the Nobel Prize. And I remember holding the phone thinking, she must be drunk. <laughs> Toni Morrison's work shows us through pain all the myriad ways we can come to love. That is what she does, with some words on a page. The trailer for Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am. As we continue to look at the remarkable life of Toni Morrison, we're joined by three guests, her dear friends and colleagues. Angela Davis, the renowned activist and author, distinguished professor emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz, a close friend of Toni Morrison for over 40 years. Toni Morrison edited her 1974 book, Angela Davis, an Autobiography. She's joining us on the phone from California. In Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, we're joined by Sonia Sanchez, award-winning poet, one of the foremost leaders of the Black Studies and the Black Arts Movement, author of 20 books including Morning Haiku and Shake Loose My Skin. She was also a dear friend of Toni Morrison. And we're joined by Nikki Giovanni, poet, activist, educator, currently the university distinguished professor at Virginia Tech. Professor Giovanni is the author of over two dozen books, her most recent, A Good Cry, What We Learn from Tears and Laughter. We're going first to Angela Davis. Can you talk about the legacy of Toni Morrison and then how you first came to know her, Professor Davis? Well, um, good morning, Amy. Um, um, I'm, I'm still, of course, recovering um, uh, from the news that Toni is no longer with us. But I think it's important for us to recognize how her words have radically altered the lives that we, we live. Um, um, she, she has helped to transform our collective sensibilities and, and also our awareness of the place of art and literature in, in, in the world. You know, sometimes 
I, I think back to the way in which I imagine slavery um, before reading Beloved, uh, and I realized how abstract uh, that imagination was. Um, she taught us, I think probably for the very first time, to imagine enslaved women and men with with full lives, with complex subjectivities, with interiority. And I think that her work has literally revolutionized the way people all over the world um, think not only about black people in the U.S., but how they imagine their own lives and, and their past. Uh, and, and their futures. I met Toni Morrison for the first time um, not long after the conclusion of my trial. Um, she was an editor at Random House Publishing Company, and she approached me with the idea of my writing an autobiography. And of course, at that particular moment, I wasn't interested in writing an autobiography. Besides, I was 28 years old, and I thought, who writes an autobiography in their 20s? Uh, you know, this is a project that should wait several decades. Uh, uh, and I also um, imagined the, the, the autobiography as genre, as something that was produced by uh, people who had standing in the world, who felt that uh, they had lived their lives in a way that would provide um, models for, for people in the world. And, and I told her this, um, but she was very insistent. And uh, when I explained what kind of work um, I might produce that might not fit into the genre of a um, what I thought was would be an individualistic autobiography. She persuaded me that 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 I could write a political uh, autobiography. Um, um, and um, Tony, uh, of course, um, had a way of creating the arguments that could persuade you to do anything. So eventually I agreed, and that was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. I'm so happy that I wrote that autobiography, if only for the reason that it introduced me to Toni Morrison. I want to go, Angela, to a clip from a 2010 conversation between Toni Morrison and you, Angela Davis, at the New York Public Library. Um, she sort of laboriously came up onto the stage and immediately joked about how she had just had hip replacement. Uh, the rest of her body had to catch up with her magic hip. But you were both speaking at the event called Frederick Douglass, Literacy, Libraries and Liberation. Here, Toni Morrison talks about the legal creation of whiteness. The interesting thing is that the, the, they established these laws. And the laws were very, very interesting. They said things like, Any, no black shall be allowed to carry a weapon, ever, 
for any circumstances. Okay. Second, any white can maim or kill any black for any reason without being charged. Now you see what that did to the indentured servants who were white. Now they're better, freer, more powerful. They're the same situation. They're still enslaved, but they're not, but they can carry weapons and they can beat up black slaves without punishment. Mm -hmm. So they have this little margin of status, nothing else, nothing else but that little margin. And that little margin has worked its way through this country since then. That was in the 17th century. And you know, the Southern strategy, you know, all these things in which you, you know, flag race and racism as a cause or even a goal. You know, racism is not a goal. It's a path. It's just a route to power and money. That's what it is. That's what it's for, whether it's via war or segregation or what have you. The thing itself is just a manipulation and a tool. And its purpose is um, what I just described that went on after the Bacon mm -hmm. Rebellion. I wanted to turn to Nikki Giovanni right now, poet, activist, professor, currently the university distinguished professor at Virginia Tech. Uh, professor Giovanni is the author of over two dozen books, her latest, uh, Good Cry, What We Learned from Tears and Laughter. Uh, professor Giovanni, I went to see you at Virginia Tech years ago. It was after the Virginia Tech massacre. We sat in your office, and you kept getting interrupted by phone calls because you were extremely excited about preparing this event at Virginia Tech, where you and Maya Angelou would be celebrating the life of Toni Morrison. Uh, she was coming. It was after the death of her son, and you just wanted to cheer her up and share her— magnificence with the world. Um, can you talk about how you first met Toni Morrison and what she has meant for you? Well, I, I first met Toni uh, because I stalked her. I read The Bluest Eye, and uh, I was living in New York, and simply walked—I lived on 92nd and Central Park West, and I walked down to Random House because I never did understand how to take a, a subway. And I walked down to Random House and said, you know, I'd like to see Toni Morrison. And the uh, security guard said, you know, is she expecting you? And I said, well, no. And he said, well, who are you? And I wrote my name and sent it up. And she sent the message back, asked her to wait. And she came back down after a few—I guess she cleaned her desk or whatever. And uh, we went across the street and had, uh, had a cup of coffee. And it was just—you uh, know, when you're talking to any genius, you're— uh, shy. I don't know if I'm shy, but certainly trying to find uh, the right words. But uh, we, we had the cup of coffee, and a, a relationship um, grew out of that. Uh, Maya—I was—when Slade died, I went down to see Maya, and I say down because Maya was at uh, Wake Forest, and I uh, said, you know, what should we do? And it wasn't cheer her up, because uh, you, you lose a child, you, you can't be cheered up. 
but um, it was to comfort. And the sisterhood had to come in. And good morning, uh, Angela, and good morning, Sonia, because all both of them, uh, we called Angela right away because I knew that they were close. And, of course, Sonia came. We had a sheer good fortune, because Tony had said it's sheer good fortune to miss someone before they're gone. And I'd like to say, you know, we, we're talking about it today, that We've lost Tony, but Tony Morrison is, is, is Shakespeare. Tony Morrison is a storyteller like Jesus. We, we will never lose Tony Morrison. She will always be here, and she'll be here in somebody else's mind, and, and she'll look like something. You know, we'll, we'll look like we're fighting about how does Shakespeare look or something. But Tony Morrison will always be with us because she's she has created a, a, a body of work of genius, and uh, it, it'll always be there. It, it, 200 years from now, we'll be reading Tony. Professor Giovanni, you mentioned the bluest eye. Um, I want to go to another clip of that 2010 conversation between Tony and Angela Davis at the New York Public Library. When I wrote the first book I wrote, The Bluest Eye, I really wanted to know why that girl felt so bad. The one who, a real life girl, who said she wanted blue eyes. We were talking about the, whether God existed. I, of course, was persuaded that he did. And she was persuaded that he did not, and her proof was that she had prayed for blue eyes for two years. Two years. And she didn't get them, though obviously he wasn't up there. But when I looked at her and thought about how awful she would look <laughs> if she got them. And then I thought the second thing was, how beautiful she was at that moment, you know. She was just incredible, but I didn't even know whether she was beautiful or not until I thought about what she might think. Then the third thing, of course, is why does she want that? You know, what, what makes her think that's an improvement? And that kind of self-loathing, which is real, you know, in, when you don't have any support, made me, you know, think of that as a as a real subject for a book, not some old victim, but really how it works. Nikki Giovanni, as Toni Morrison talks about um, writing The Bluest Eye, uh, about a young black girl in rural Ohio in the 1940s, uh, who was raped by a father, driven to madness. Um, if you can talk about the significance of this book and why you walk to meet her, it was a 2000 pick for the Oprah Winfrey's book club. And people might say, oh, why are you raising that now? Well, actually, Oprah Winfrey said she wouldn't have even have made a book club if it weren't for Tony. Morrison, Nikki Giovanni. And, and I think she's right. You know, Piccola didn't like herself. And I think that's what Tony was, was dealing with, that Piccola, the, the bluest eye was just a, a metaphor. Piccola wanted to be something that somebody could be seen, that she could look at herself. And I'll tell you, the kid that I like so much right now is Renee Watson, who is a big woman. And she's begun writing about what it is to be a big woman, that she can look at herself, because you look at yourself and you say, oh, I'm too fat. I'm, I'm somebody who, who always needs to gain weight, because I've, I've had a, a, a situation with cancer. I'm not fighting cancer. I'm trying to live with it. But I need to gain weight. I need to make sure that my weight doesn't—I don't want to lose weight. And we live in a world that—, that I turn on my television, and it's like, wow, you can lose weight. I don't want to lose weight. I want to gain weight. But there are people who are waiting, who are big, and, and nobody's writing about them except 
Renee is writing about them. I think she's a brilliant young woman. I think the next uh, Nobelist should be Edwidge Dadekin, who is just an incredibly wonderful, wonderful writer. So when we start to look at what made Piccola, if Piccola had been able to read Renee or had been able to read uh, 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 Edwidge, or had been able, for that matter, to read—and uh, I love him so much—Kwame Alexander, if she had been able to find somebody that said, but, but you are—you are a pretty girl. It's all right. And you say, well, rape is a horrible thing. I think rape is pretty bad. I've never been raped, so I'm happy about that. But I think that it's not something that the person who was raped did. It's something that was done to you. And so things that are done to you, you have to find a way to push that you have to find a way to push that that back. It's not your fault. And I think that, that Tony was, was taking the steps to say, it's not your fault. I mean, Ohio, look at Ohio right now, and that'd be a whole discussion that we're not going to have. But look at Dayton. And look, I mean, you, you look at what's happening in—look at what's happening in America. And so we've got to do better. So we need a little more. We, we need a little more Tony Marsons. And I do actually want to talk about that with you before the end of the show, because here you are at Virginia Tech, 32 people killed in the massacre there. You taught the actual shooter, and that's another discussion, but I do want to get back to it. However, I want to go to Sonia Sanchez right now, the award-winning poet, one of the foremost leaders of the Black Studies and Black Arts Movement, author of 20 books, including Morning Haiku and Shake Loose My Skin. Um, Sonia, you've said what Tony has done with her literature is that she's made us look up and see ourselves. Explain when you first discovered her, how you teach her to your students, what she has meant in your own writing. Uh, good morning, um, Sister Angela and Sister Nikki and Sister Amy. Uh, it is good being on this program. I'm, I, I just had surgery on my mouth yesterday, so I'm hoping that you <laughs> can understand uh, what I'm saying. Um, but um, my dear sister, um, um, we were at the beginning of the Black Studies uh, movement here in America, and I was blessed to uh, teach, initiate the first course on uh, the black woman uh, in America, and that was at the University of Pitt um, in 1969. And of course, when I moved back to uh, the East and came back home, I then had to begin to look for books and other books that I had had to include in that discussion of black women. And I, of course, read The Bluest Eye. Let me tell you, my dear sister, when I read The Bluest Eye, I sat down on the floor. You know, I read in all kinds of positions, sometimes in bed, stretched out, sometimes on the couch, you know, sitting rigidly rigid, uh, sometimes walking back and forth uh, as I read. Um, I did not put that book down. I literally started it from the beginning, and later on that night, up in my study, where I had ended with a cup of hot tea, that I began to finish that book. Um, and, you know, and what I knew that this woman, this Sister Toni Morrison, did something uh, uh, with language, with words, um, how she, in a sense, in that book and all the other books, um, um, untangled 
uh, this language that had captured us in this place called America, how she began to stand those words up, uh, and how she let those words minuet our blood, you know. And so she opened up this thing called sorcery, the sorcery of our language. Um, and, and she was spitting teeth. Um, on uh, on on our words, and but she was recapturing uh, our most sacred vows, those vows in our language, uh, in a place called America, and um, you know um, I, I I taught that um, that book. Um, that was one of the books that I constantly taught. That I always said to Sister Tony. When people began to talk about her greatest book, you know, I said, well, you know, I always gravitate back towards the bluest eye uh, because of what it says and what it does uh, uh, for us uh, uh, as black women. I, at some point, uh, began to look and understand that, you know, in many African cultures, um, when you have twins— it is said that the first twin uh, that comes out comes out, you know, to search and make sure it's okay for the second twin. So you come out and you look around. I maintain when I teach that the bluest eye was that first twin coming out, looking around, searching, say, is it okay to say this? Is it okay what I'm going to say? Is there fertile land for this? Are there fertile eyes for this? Are there fertile—is there fertile memory for what I'm going to say? You know, and then all the other— all the other children came out from Sula on down, you know, to Beloved. But that first one, the bluest eye, was the one that came out to say, hey, is it safe to do this? Um, let me tell you what's happening out here as you prepare to bring us these other books, right? So one of the things, every time I, I read her, I would always put on my eyes, you know. I used to tell her this, uh, because I'm, I was always in the eyelash of her memory, um, where there was always uh, a miracle, miracle called Sister Toni Morrison. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, August 10, 2019. So I have been told. <clears throat> moment to reflect, recognize the passing of victim of white supremacy, editor, author, Toni Morrison, passed away this week at the age of 88. Context of white supremacy, lots of mourning this week. This is our weekly Compensatory call-in, dial-in if you have thoughts, questions, suggestions, counter-racist thoughts. The number is 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605 605- Three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. 
several things before we get to the listeners. <clears throat> like victim of white supremacy Sonia Sanchez, I too read Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye in one day. I remember it vividly. And I enjoy I didn't even read it for a class. And at the time, <clears throat> I was not an avid reader. I was not one of those folks who, you know, oh, my goodness, let's go to the bookstore. Let's go to the library and, you know, find the gym. That was not Gus T at this time. But wow, I was able to get my hand. I went to the library. I was able to get the book, <clears throat> The Bluest Eye. I uh, came back. Wow. One day. Could not wait to finish it. And it's, it is in my top five. I'm so proud. I'm so proud. Number one, that we have a book club, period. A book club that we've had for seven years. We had a listener who asked me for a list of all the books that we've read on the Cows Book Club. And I laughed. And I said, that makes me exhausted just thinking of writing the list. I think I got halfway through and submitted and said, this is half the list. You know, have fun. I think it would take you some years to get through all of that. Uh, and once you do, I'll probably have the rest of the list compiled. But I mean, it is enormous, the amount of material, relatively speaking, that we've read, <clears throat> considering the book club is just once a week. But the second book we read in that enormous list, The Bluest Eye, Toni Morrison, the only book we read before that was Urugu, Dr. Marimba Ani, which is also in my top five. So proud. The book is there and I read it in one day. I've read that book like The Invisible Man many times. Uh, I've lost track of how many times and looking forward to reading it, reading it again like The Invisible Man. I always learn something new uh, when I reread. That is easily uh, my favorite book that Toni Morrison wrote, although I've not read everything that she's written. She was such a huge body of work. So uh, I think our next book, we Gavin DeBecker, The Gift of Fear. Uh, we should be done, if not this week, uh, the following fr uh, Thursday. And it may be this coming Thursday that we're done. I have to look at the audio again. We are very close to the conclusion. Uh, so I think the next book will be Tar Baby. The only asterisk <clears throat> would be if you all think it would be more constructive to select one of these manifestos. We have had listeners suggest that before. Let's read Dylan Roof's manifesto on the book club. Let's get the El Paso shooter. Let's read his manifesto on the book club or, you know, pick one. Or maybe we can read them both. Elliot Roger, he wrote one as well. Uh, and I thought that was a great idea. So if we have listeners, if you participate in the book club and you think, hey, we just had these events. This is the focus right now. Let's read the El Paso manifesto for the book club or one of the others. I would be down for that. If not that, no discussion, uh, Tony Morrison and Tar Baby, because that was suggested. I think that's the only time we read a book by an author in the book club where it was suggested immediately. Let's read another Toni Morrison book. And Tar Baby was the book. I have not read Tar Baby, so I would enjoy that one a lot. I uh, always like adding to the library. But uh, if you did not get to participate in the 2012 book club discussion on the bluest eye, it is in the archives. It is on YouTube. You can check it out amazing just the brilliance of Toni Morrison and it is so applicable 
uh, to the system of white supremacy as it currently operates 2019, uh, even though that book was written so many years ago, almost 50 years. And it's still every bit as important and brilliant. Uh, I will say, however, that was from Democracy Now!, my BFF, Amy Goodman, suspected white supremacist. That is a fine illustration of why for years, almost the full decade that we have been broadcasting, I have requested that people not call me brother. If it gets to the point where when we come out, sister, brother, we're going to do all that. And it's yes, brother Gus. Yes, Brother Malcolm. Yes, Sister Sonia. Yes, Sister Amy Goodman. Now, when it gets to that point, I'm good with all of that. Uh, at that point, nigger is preferable. Coon is preferable. Uh, anything other than brother. Uh, if it gets to that point where uh, Amy Goodman is now a sister in all of this. I've heard that happen a lot. Brother John, they'll be talking about Bron uh, John Brown, even though he's been dead for, you know, hundreds of years at this point. And it'll be Brother John. <sighs> no brother, please. Thank you. No name calling either. <clears throat> Continuing. We are listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, visit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com paypal button is in the top right corner if you're not in the paypal we also have our cash app operating cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows enormous gratitude to all of the investors who have supported you uh, are why we have been on the air for a decade I hope the context of white supremacy has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, if you are not into all of that high tech wizardry, you can drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Also, you can visit the wish list at Amazon.com. It is under Gus T. Renegade. Again, Huge thanks to all of the listeners who have nabbed items from the wish list over the past decade. Again, I hope the cows has provided constructive, accurate information about what white supremacy racism is, things non-white people can and should do to solve this problem promptly, and information, accurate information about what it means to be classified as white. Next. <clears throat> So last week, compensatory call-in, August 3, I was sharing an incident that happened. I was teaching, I've been teaching yoga in the park over the summer in Seattle. Uh, it's been glorious. I've done it three times. Uh, I did not teach this past Monday. I hung out with another black female yoga instructor. That was cool as well. Uh, but it's just been wonderful. I got to hang out with some cows listeners. Uh, got to hang out with just random uh, black people, black children, got to teach yoga to a lot of black children. Uh, it's just been uh, a really spectacular experience. And it was a job. So to be compensated for it, like, oh, wow, best of, you know, all worlds. And to have experience add to my yoga instructor resume. I have hosted a yoga retreat, check, and 
have taught children in the park. Check. Uh, so <clears throat> last week, we had technical difficulties. My line got dropped, but I was not aware of the exact point that it got cut off. So I pretty much missed the entire report. Uh, when I taught yoga last week, I taught the first group. Immediately after we finished, there was an entirely different group of children, all black males, who arrived and they had black counselors, a black female and a black male, gorgeous black female, totally irrelevant to the story. Uh, so they come to <clears throat> play football. They already had the ball in hand. We literally were rolling up our mats, concluding as they were arriving, preparing to play football. My immediate thought was brain damage. Nothing good comes from playing football. This is a sport where they pretty much guarantee you play this. You are going to get hurt. We played that clip last week. California, they're talking about doing away with uh, physical football for folks under high school. I say, bravo, get rid of it altogether. So they come out and I'm wondering, are they going to play tackle? Are they going to play flag? Like, what is this? Either way, you know, <laughs> I'm not pleased or I won't say that I'm not pleased, but I'm thinking, wow, this is not the most constructive activity. Uh, and I, I further have this corroborated by by watching where they set the boundaries. Normally, you would set the parameters in a linear fashion. And if there are any natural boundaries, concrete, sidewalk, intersection, that would normally not be a part of the field. That was not the case for this game. They proceed and there's lots. And uh, the age of these uh, black boys is... I'll say 12, give or take two years. Some are maybe a year or two older, some are a year or two under, but the mean is about 12. So they're playing, it's uh, two-hand touch football, American football, not soccer. So they're playing football and <clears throat> the anti-blackness, you know, it's foul language and calling each other nigger. And I mean, I am not perfect. I certainly was not always codified. I was a uh, young person and played uh, physical activity. And that is a part of it. Being macho, being tough, talking or if that is frequently a part of it doesn't have to be uh, per se. But <clears throat> the amount of ugliness compared to there was like zero. Oh, nice throw. Great catch. Nice tackle, well, not tackle, but you know, <clears throat> two hands. None of that. I don't remember anything congratulatory, <clears throat> any sort of uh, encouragement. It was all put down. And I mean, sometimes like really, really vile. And I mean, again, these are 12 year olds, <clears throat> really, really vile uh, in the way that they talk to each other. Uh, one time a, a young black child was down on the ground, hurt. He started crying. Uh, they got to the end of the contest. And the counselor said, now let's review our list of criers now in week three Bradley cried in week two Joseph cried last week Robert cried and this week Keontae cried that's the way it went Nas was horrified like wow like this is an activity if my child was involved in an activity where every week somebody cried and then they mocked whoever was hurt to the point that they had to cry like 
I would not want my child participating in that activity. And further, why haven't we stopped engaging in that this activity if somebody's going to be hurt that bad every week? And then we're going to tease them about it. <clears throat> so all of this happened last week. In addition to us almost being trampled, uh, this is an enormous field. I was concerned about the boundaries at first, but didn't want to nag and should have trusted my better judgment and said something because then they almost trampled us. Uh, it was an unpleasant experience, is putting it mildly. So this past Monday, go to the park. I am not teaching. I'm just there to hang out, support black female instructor. I get there. We're walking up onto her. And I adjust my eyes. She is teaching yoga to the very black boys who were there last week. I'm absolutely stunned. I'm applauding from the back. She looked at me like I'm crazy, like this nigga came to disrupt my class. So I quieted down and uh, participated quietly in the back. <clears throat> and uh, they, there was not one ugly name. There was not one bit of foul language, which there was quite a bit of the previous week. There was not one incident of crying or mocking any other students. It was pleasant. They were into it. Mostly there was a little bit of, you know, griping. Why we have to do it? And I think some of the, some of them were, I think, compelled to do it. Anyway, they participated. We got to the end. Uh, I was so uh, pleased. It was such such an enormous improvement. I went up to uh, the black female who I came to support and, and told her about what happened last week. Uh, and just told her I was I thought that was such uh, an enormous uh, presentation uh, of black self-respect uh, because it was such a dramatic difference. Uh, people who talk about uh, being able to sense uh, sense energy. It was such a different uh, energy with the group not having all of that violence and anti-blackness directed at black children, even if it had been black adults, you know, that wouldn't have made it better. Uh, but it was such an improvement. And I said, you know, I'm disgusted. I'm embarrassed with myself that I didn't ask, hey, would you all like to do yoga? Now, she inserted the circumstances were quite different from the week before when I taught and the week when they arrived and did yoga. It did not appear that there was a football with them. So maybe they had a different agenda uh, for this week around. And as I said last week, as soon as our class ended, we literally were trying to get gear rolled up and they arrived with the football already in the air, ready to roll. So it, circumstances were different, but be that as it may, uh, I was like, man, I could have offered to do yoga, could have changed the energy uh, and what they were doing. And instead I was just like, wow, I've just sat there stunned uh, at what was happening. You could be more proactive. We can be more proactive. I say that all the time, not being spectators uh, when things happen uh, to try to be uh, more active, to change things in a constructive direction. So that was lesson learned for me. And I'm so glad that I went uh, to see that because uh, it was just an enormous difference. And I said that last week, like if we're doing the football thing just to get physical activity, there are about a billion different things that we could do that I think would be way better where we would not have to curse anyone. We would not have to mock someone if they get hurt. Like, oh my God, I could think of a billion better alternatives and would be much less likely to cause injury and things that we could do for a lot longer. Like, I don't think you're going to generally see too many people out there uh, in their 60s and 50s playing football, generally speaking. 
I don't know, maybe retire five. I don't know. Maybe you get out there playing running back every now and then. You can call in and put us to shame. And not talking about me, Gusty. I'm still out there stiff arming and doing my thing. Anywho, that was one. Number two, got a lot of yoga reports this week. Mandatory that I share this one. So I'm in Seattle. They have uh, lots of outdoor yoga in the summertime because it is majestic here in the summertime. That is part of why uh, it is the best plantation in North America that I visited. Uh, They have rooftop yoga in Seattle and lots of it. I think I talked about it last summer. I did uh, rooftop yoga uh, as a part of my teacher training. Uh, and did rooftop rooftop yoga. I had already done rooftop yoga before uh, last weekend this summer several times, uh, and then had an opportunity to do some practicing this past weekend. So I went to practice this past Sunday. I've been so spoiled with the types of views that they have in Seattle because it's on the water, and they have Mount Rainer uh, off to the south. I mean, you just have incredible views. Um, that the view this past weekend I thought was meh. It's, you know, it's all right. Uh, but, you know, we're still out in the sun. It's nice. I didn't get assaulted uh, or kicked or anything. I did a great job getting my space. Uh, and it felt good just to practice. I'd been sick, so I hadn't been able to practice for a number of days. Uh, and that was my first time being able to get back and practice. And we get through. So we get to the end of the class. And the suspected racist instructor, white woman, she comes up to me. She was not familiar. If you had asked me, I'd say, no, I don't think I've ever uh, seen her before. Nothing about her looks familiar. And she says, "Uh, did you used to practice at the studio over yonder? And I say, yes. She says, oh, man, I remember you. I remember you used to practice there. Absolutely. She says, in fact, you used to wear that shirt. Please treat me like I'm a white person. Yep, that is me, the only nigger in the building, of course. So as this is being said, I think literally when we're at the part about, oh, yeah, you had that shirt. Please treat me like a white person. Uh, A white man, suspected racist, interrupts and he says, oh, wait a minute. Excuse me. Uh, Did you used to practice at different studio over yonder? And I says, yes. And he says, oh, yeah, I remember you. Yeah, you used to practice there. And in fact, they told us all about that no good Anna Brown Griswold and how she came in and told about you getting kicked. That is so whack, man. They told us that you canceled your membership. And I said, oh, really? This is the uh, event that happened uh, a few months back. And I said, I would have to give you more details. Uh, it's months ongoing, uh, massive. The write-up is coming. And so uh, this is just confirming more white supremacy racism in the way that the narrative is being told about what happened. Uh, And so I told him, no, the white supremacy racism was widespread, including whites who work at the studio. It was not just uh, limited to Anna Brown Griswold. And he says, oh, my goodness, I had no idea. Well, I canceled my membership there. It didn't have anything to do with what happened to you, by the way. Just want to make that clear. (laughs) I was like, of course not. I certainly wouldn't think you would be supporting the nigger. And so he moves on about his day. The white woman says, my goodness, what uh, what's been your experience as as a black male in yoga? And I said, white supremacy, racism. This is the day after everything happened in Texas and Ohio. White supremacy, racism. That's been my experience. She says, wow, I don't. What, what, what could I do? Do you have any suggestions? 
And I said, well, I don't practice uh, with white people anymore. That's my conclusion after all of this. Uh, I'm just here because I wanted to be on the rooftop. Uh, but if you are going to teach and any non-white people are at your studio, you could just ask them directly. Uh, has racism, white supremacy been a problem? Let me know. Is there anything that I can do if racism is being practiced against you? That would be helpful. No white person has ever done that for me in a yoga studio and then follow through. If they report that, oh, yeah, racism is being practiced, then follow through on saying that that stops immediately. And she said, hmm, well, nice talking to you. And she moved right along, which was fine with me because I was not there to talk about any of that. I didn't even have my shirt on because it was hot summer day. But, buddy, that is the tackiness of racism, white supremacy on so many levels. I will have to write up the full narrative. Uh, and I even thought I need to get a new yoga uniform uh, that says uh, Notorious GTR uh, because I am uh, well known, uh, persona non grata in some circles, but well known being uh, one of the few Negras period uh, to practice yoga, to be a black male, no less, uh, to practice. It appears that I am well known, well talked about, probably some unjust networking uh, going on in all of this as well. But lots of yoga incidents to report this week. I will stop there, even though I had many more notes. Uh, Lots of things happened this week. I'm sure folks will have thoughts to share. The number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. You could take five minutes to share your thoughts, questions, suggestions. That'll make sure everyone gets at least one opportunity to share. If you have additional comments, we should have time once everyone speaks uh, for this broadcast exclusively. If we could not use metaphors, uh, they compared uh, Toni Morrison, the great, to Shakespeare and Jesus. These two figures are frequently identified as white. Erroneously or no, they are frequently classified thought of, depicted as white in the system of white supremacy racism, the religion of white supremacy racism, uh, metaphors frequently in the system, that's what you end up getting. Uh, if a black person is great, the comparison, the only model that we'll have to compare and equate to greatness will be someone classified as white. That would be another reason why I would say let's be mindful of the metaphors, uh, I think in some way that that still reinforces uh, because that uh, it, even at a subconscious level, it continues to maintain greatness with whiteness, with white people specifically. Uh, and that is, is ubiquitous uh, in the system of racism, white supremacy. That would be another reason that I'd say, let's be mindful of the metaphors that are employed. Racists, they will also frequently uh, take two separate entities and insist that they are equivalent. Often that is not the case at all. That is one of the means of master deception, uh, frequently victims of racism. Uh, we are still learning, myself included, and sometimes uh, we just don't have logic to articulate our views, so we will substitute with an analogy or comparison of some, uh, some sort. Frequently this just, this just contributes to confusion. If we could be direct about what it is we want to say that would be super appreciated. I will prompt about the metaphors. 
star six one if you have comments to share. Uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Line should be open. Proceed. Hello. Uh, yes, ma'am. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Hope everyone's having the best evening they can have. Um, my strategy is well. I don't. I'm not around a whole lot of people, but if especially a white person asks me about what we, can we do about this racism problem, I've decided to offer them my consulting fees. They start at five million dollars. When the check clears, you'll have an answer within a month, something like that. Don't, I mean, I would just explain the complexities and that it, I think it takes a lot of time to solve a problem that white people created, and that would be my fee. Because, like, like you said, I'm, I don't believe they're serious about solving the problem. So if they're serious, I'll get a check. If they're not serious, I can just keep on moving and do well, not, well, keep on moving physically, we'll move on to a next area of something that I can solve or work on. Um, I just, I don't, I don't have the patience anymore. I guess I'm old. Get old, that's important. Um, I had um, my first health exam, the mammogram. Um, it went well, I guess, you know, nothing happened. But I came out feeling really tired, and I guess, you know, I didn't think about it going in, but you are getting radiated, and they don't do anything to protect you. Like when you go to the dentist, they put that big thing on you. And I came out feeling very, very tired. So I don't know if anybody's had that. Um, I told my mom. She felt bad. She was like, that that happened to me. I'm so sorry. I go, well, everybody's different. I never thought about that. So that's something to think about. You know, online it says the risk. I mean, the benefits of the examination outweigh the risk, but, I mean, radiation is radiation, and I just felt very unnerved after the whole, after the whole process because, I mean, I got up early, but I felt very drained after it. It didn't take a long time, but I just felt very drained after that. Um, so that's something to be mindful of. Um, I appreciate the information on Ms. Morrison. Um, I was, sadly, I didn't know a lot about her. I knew who she was. And I knew about her books. I read, I read Song of Solomon in high school, so it's not like I didn't know anything about her. But you know, any the more information, the better. Um, and I know you suggested reading the Tar Baby book. I never heard of that. So I guess it's based on the, some old folk tale story. So I read that real quick online as the program progressed. Because it's like, you read like in a minute or two. Well, actually it takes a few minutes because it's in dialect, almost like um, the book, the Barracoon book, almost like in dialect. So you have to kind of get through the dialect, even though it's very short. That dialect trip will um, take some time to get used to, even though, again, it's very short. And it's really, if you read it, it's about something non-black making something black to trip up someone else who is non black. I don't know if I don't it's supposed to be bunny rabbits or whatever. Well we know those those tend to be metaphors for people. And how the more entangled the um they get with this thing that they created, the more problems come about. And I just thought that was
very fascinating because white people came up with the idea, I believe, of black people. You know, we are dark skin. I have I've seen a lot of dark models. They have um, pictures of people online, but I still really haven't seen the quote unquote black person. Such as I have well, I've almost seen a white person and how they created and they're always complaining about oh, the black people they say people of color but when they really complain we most people believe their complaint. I believe they complain mostly about black people, which is so they they created a situation. They don't want to solve the problem. Like I said, they want to ask you what to do about a problem that they created. I just thought that was fascinating. Well, I got all that from reading it. Like I said, it's very quick. Um, that's all I have for now. Thank you. Much obliged. Always think it's good to uh, learn more. Uh, Tony Morrison, other prominent folks, learn a little bit more information probably learn a bit more about white supremacy racism. Love the idea about the consulting fee. Love it. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, uh, questions, comments, thoughts to share, line should be open. Proceed. While folks are doing what I did, waiting to get their thoughts together. Uh, let's see. I did have a lot of notes that I did not get to share. Uh, I did make an error. The report on El Paso. That one I should have rotated. I totally forgot they had a separate report or many separate reports detailing the uh, supposed uh, hit list, and that's the language that they used in a number of reports uh, to describe the Dayton, Ohio shooter and how this was not a surprise, uh, how this was not one of the, oh, he was such a nice person. I can't believe this. Oh, no, he had a hit list of folks that he wanted to kill at the high school uh, where he had engaged in threatening uh, terroristic type behavior previously. And then this happened. That's the report that I meant to play to contrast that with I guess this is the five-year anniversary of Michael Brown Jr. Generally how black people worldwide are treated in the system of white supremacy. But that was an error. I should have got that report. And I recognized the error. It was a little bit before the program. I was not sure there was enough time for me to rotate. So I just said I would have to mention and hope that a lot of people did get to see that information uh, over the course of the past week. Uh, let's see. I guess I'll share one more. The report on the vouchers being used in Seattle so that people, they said so-called poor people, can get better access to housing. They have a program like that in Seattle, in my view, because they don't have a lot of black people. I've played previous reports where they talked about how uh, at the Seattle Public Libraries, they exclusively boot black children meaning expel them from the library. This exclusively happens to black children in Seattle public libraries. That's generally the type of policy uh, that they have about black people. Because they don't have a lot of black people here, they can have a voucher program like that where you can get 
assistance and go out and get housing in a really nice yeah, Bellevue. I have friends uh, who grew up in Bellevue, went to high school in Bellevue, their parents owned property uh, in Bellevue. Like, wow, you talk about no black people. There are no black people in Bellevue. That was one of the uh, suburbs that they mentioned uh, of Seattle in that segment uh, where I think it was like a, a Russian family. They were able to get uh, housing in the Bellevue area. They were able to get assistance. That program, they certainly uh, are not funneling lots of black people to Bellevue. I was in Bellevue last month and I don't recall seeing very many black people out there at all. Lots of examples uh, of that sort, in my view. Them having, uh, and they have reports. I, we played a report, I think a year or two back, uh, where they will have resources like that in these areas where there aren't a lot of black people. I think they have a percentage, like once it hits something close to 40%, like those type of programs begin to vanish. Uh, exactly what they said in the clip that people generally balk and, eh, we don't want all these, you know, Section 8 Negras uh, living uh, in our area. Get out of here. We're not taking any vouchers or whatever. It'll mess up our property. About James Lowen, Sundown Towns. And I did check, I guess that would be moments. So I said I had a lot of notes this week. Uh, the killers, white identity extremists in both Dayton, Ohio and El Paso, Texas, they both said they were in uh, suburbs. I checked the registry on sundown towns uh, for James Lowen. You know, you can go on there and look by state and see if there's any evidence uh, that a particular location might have been or may still be uh, a sundown town. I did not see uh, they had the suburb. Uh, it was right outside of Dayton. I forget the name. And uh, Allen is the name of the suburb right outside of Dallas where they said the El Paso shooter is from. And that uh, I, my mind was immediately alert because we spent so much time talking about Dallas and sundown towns and how you have so many uh, suburbs. Uh, they talked about the park suburbs and all of these areas uh, where white people have made them so they can be exclusive and get away from the niggers uh, in the greater Dallas area. I went to check. Allen was not there, not listed as a sundown town, but the fact that it's a suburb, eh, I would still raise, uh, raise a question mark and the same thing uh, for the shooter in Ohio. They said he was uh, in one of the suburbs of Dayton. Immediately reminded me of sundown towns. Many more notes to share. Uh, other folks not being spectators, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, uh, commentary to share. Line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, retired firefighter. Greetings, Gus. And greetings to everyone. Uh, sounds like you had a better experience uh, with the football players. <laughs> uh, yes, this week, uh, I, uh, without any expectations, uh, decided to uh, take up an offer from uh, the uh, my uh, uh, street uh, uh, coordinator, you know, we have the uh, the uh, talks on the uh, sidewalk about uh, homeowners' uh, activities in the area. Uh, also, uh, as far as uh, any type of uh, uh, negative or positive activity, we also pick up trash around the area. And uh, she uh, basically, uh, through text, informed uh, us that uh, there was a uh, quote-unquote town hall meeting at beautiful Florida Memorial University. 
Uh, that's the university that's responsible for writing this, the uh, song Lift Every Voice. Uh, although it wasn't, it, it moved down here to uh, South Florida. It was in Jacksonville, Florida, I believe. Uh, but anyway, that's where this uh, town hall meeting was. The theme of the town hall meeting was breathing while black. So I decided to entertain myself by going to this uh, town hall meeting to observe. And uh, uh, the motif was uh, a, a panel, quote unquote, of experts uh and uh the audience and it was hosted by uh a uh black male black female team who is actually uh our host on a local news program channel 6 to be to be exact uh also at the same time i think the host also was the national black journalist they were down here in South Florida, you know, typical uh, conventions where black people have conventions and spending tons of money uh, to uh, white merchants, primarily. Um, uh, not to criticize, but in some cases, they don't have any choice uh, to do so uh, if they're going to have a convention. Uh, and uh, so I was just sitting observing uh, uh, they had also, as, as, the, as the, uh, the people on the panel, a victim uh, that made, I don't, know, I don't know if it went uh, national, but it definitely was a local black female, uh, somewhere around her mid to late 20s, uh, mother, uh, attempted mother. Uh, she called the police because a white male pulled, uh, pointed a gun at her. And in turn, when the police arrived, they ended up throwing her to the ground and arresting her. Uh, and and uh, all of these charges were reversed. And in turn, I believe the, uh, the, the race soldier actually was the person who's supposed to train uh, law enforcement uh, on uh, the behavior that he actually exhibited. But nevertheless, she was up on the stage also. So, it was a question and a question period, although the questions were already apparently uh, organized on who was going to ask questions. Uh, to make a long story short, uh, some, only one person asked about, well, what is the, the solution with law enforcement and black people? And, uh, but there, <laughs> there was no answer. No one gave an answer to it. Uh, I thought it was quite interesting that the the term global system of racism, white supremacy was n not even mentioned in the entire hour and a half of this program existence. Uh, and even so, e each each one of those words was not even mentioned in the entire program at all. Uh, so that was basically uh, the uh, highlight of my week, you was, uh, I would say, uh, as far as that concern. And uh, I don't want to take up any more time. And uh, that's it. Thank you. Are you out, 
playing running back or defensive end, <laughs> nose guard? Are you are you out doing that still? Uh, it it sounds like what you have been experiencing is unorganized uh, activities. Uh, the I as as long as I have been coaching since 1981, probably could have coached you. Uh, most of the things that you're expressing, which I, I I can say it can happen, uh, I did not have don't have any experiences about at all with that type of behavior. Uh, it would not be tolerated uh, uh, with me personally, let alone the people that I worked have been worked with over the course of 30 some odd years. Uh, you you can get national examples like Tony Dungy, whose voice doesn't even go as high, higher than what my voice is right now, let alone talking about cursing or any type of negative activity. And, and he's and he's in the NFL Hall of Fame as a coach. So uh, and he's one of you know one of the models uh, that I uh, look at. Uh, basically, uh, there's much more better experiences. That's all I'm suggesting. Uh, as far as that concern, and and I would say also there's some much more dangerous activities that young people are engaged in on a daily basis that are much more dangerous than football. I'll put it that way. That I that I deal with on a daily basis, the young people. And uh, but uh, anyway, that's uh, that was my experiences from the from from, the, from this past week. The, the highlight one, anyone, anywhere, any, any, you know, that was the highlight. But it wasn't the only thing I did. But that was the highlight. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Watching and observing always a great counter-racist technique to employ when around other victims of racism. Difficult to, for there to be conflict if you are just watching and observing. That is often going to be an observation the term white supremacy racism not being used even though that is exactly what we are talking about other folks uh, who dialed in if you have a hand up comments questions counter racist suggestions to share uh, line should be open proceed Uh, greetings Imhan DC Yes, sir. Greetings. I wanted to say uh, to, I think it's Irie, who uh, found the genealogist for me or uh, mentioned the genealogist. I appreciate it. I was able to get in touch with um, with her. And I think also Irie um, had found um, one of found, um, the clip or a clip of um, Dr. Wilson. Uh, that wasn't the particular clip. I do thank you for um, for looking uh, for it. Um, that's the the title. That's correct. It's um, can you protect your melanin, Doctor? In this Doctor Wilson's uh, video, um, but I think it's like an hour long. Um, when I was in Ghana, I was sharing information with some of the people that I met, and I shared Doctor Wilson's that particular video of Dr. Wilson with uh, some of the people that I met. And they viewed uh, the other videos that I showed them. But once they got to Dr. Wilson's video, 
you know, it was like a few days later, um, and we know we were having discussions, but once they got to Dr. Wilson's video, it got deleted, but it wasn't deleted when I sent it to him. Um, but, uh, that particular video was one of the better videos as far as explaining white supremacy in one clip. Um, a lot of times if you send a video or send, um, sound clippings, it's not a book of information, so it doesn't give the entire description of what white supremacy is and what our what our problem is and how we can solve it. But um, that particular video, I was liking it because it uh, was summarizing the problem very well for me. Thank you. Much obliged. Listeners trying to help out. I do remember folks uh, trying to search, uh, but that has been a pattern. I think people have noted over years, uh, constructive information being taken down, the cows archives being disrupted and has happened to a lot of other folks uh, where things that are constructive. I think Mr. Fuller even has that in the code book in the section under uh, education. Folks can, you know, double check if you have your code book available. Uh, where he talks about how that's one of the ways that white supremacy racism operates, where racists, they are able to compile, accumulate information. Uh, and they'll have vaults and warehouses to just stack and accumulate all kinds of data and information. That's what we're talking about now, having uh, supercomputers with all kinds of terabytes uh, of memory. Uh, to just store data and all kinds of data and this, 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 and just store it until the time that they need it. And he says for victims of uh, white supremacy racism, we are unable to do that. And so what you end up having is the exact opposite as opposed to being able to stockpile constantly all this constructive information and build on it. Uh, each generation or each person almost has to start anew uh, each time they just, where they end up getting uh, fragments of information that is very, very common, deliberate aspect of white supremacy racism. Uh, other folks uh, who dialed in questions, comments, suggestions, lines should be open. Proceed. Folks are still uh, expecting get in some of my other comments. Uh, I think they had the segment. They were playing some of the sound clips of Toni Morrison giving interviews over the years. And she talked a lot about uh, white supremacy racism. She has uh, an interview where she talked about how her dad uh, venomously hated white people. And she explained why he's a victim of racism. Uh, but she had the segment. She has an, uh, another segment on NPR where she was talking to uh, a white woman. I almost played it on the program today. And she was talking to this white woman about her black father. Uh, I think he either beat up a white person or did something to a white person who had been rude to his child. This might have been someone in her family, uh, Toni Morrison, I mean. And the white person doing the interview, she kind of responded in a certain type of way about this, about this uh, black male potentially uh, being aggressive or maybe even violent to defend his daughter. And Toni Morrison spoke to that immediately. And she said that that's you as a white woman having problems with a black male, she may say black man, uh, defending his child or defending his family. And 
the white woman was totally staggered. Like, I mean, it, she mumbled and it took her several seconds to like regain her composure and move forward with the interview. Like I played it on the program uh, at the time. It's one of the most memorable uh, interviews uh, that I've heard. Be that as it may, on the segment today, they played the clip where she was saying that she was talking about how they made laws to define what is a white person. White people could have arms, firearms, guns. Black people couldn't have weapons. White, any white person could maul any black person for any reason and all this. And she said that racism White supremacy is a means, sometimes as a goal, and it's not a goal. VGQ, Victims Guaranteed Qualified, but my position, racism, white supremacy, is the goal to make sure that white people remain in power over non-white people, to make sure that white supremacy racism continues uh, on into infinity. That is the goal. Uh, And I think not understanding that, that puts you at a disadvantage. That's what they call us. Uh, They already have money. It's not about money. We get confused about that. Uh, and that that uh, inaccuracy, that lie is uh, heavily promoted. Uh, it adds to confusion. That's not uh, what's operating here at all. White supremacy, racism, that is the goal. Uh, other folks? Ooh. Gus, can I share something for 30 seconds or less? Uh, well, I have to sneeze. So, yes, sir. Yes, I I just wanted to report that I have, I do have pictures on my wall inside the house that I'm allowed to stay in. Two of them are black females. Uh, uh, One is the great Mary McLeod Bethune, and the other one is Toni Morrison. That's it. Much obliged. That is great selections to have on the wall. Uh, and I think that been up uh, over 20 years. Love it. Love it. Phenomenal selections uh, of black self-respect. Uh, how can you go wrong having a portrait of Toni Morrison up? If I was, I probably would get the bluest eye just because that was, I read it in one day. I probably, if I could get a framed uh, copy, man, one more sneeze. My goodness. Uh, framed copy of the uh, cover uh, for the bluest eye, which I believe does have a black person. I guess it depends on which cover you get. Sometimes uh, Tony Morrison is on it. Sometimes they have Bacola Breedlove on the cover, but uh, either way, a black person uh, would be framed, featured. But that right there, black self-respect, having positive, uh, constructive images uh, of black people and black people who are doing constructive things and trying to use uh, their talents, their skills, uh, to solve the problem accurately as best as we can address the problem, white supremacy, racism. And I think Toni Morrison, uh, outstanding illustration of that. Uh, let's see. Other folks dialed in. If you have questions, comments, line should be open. Let's proceed. Copy heard. Greetings, Thomas in New York. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to all the callers. Um, yeah, um, Tony Morrison, uh, rest in peace, rest in power. Um, great work. Um, to Mr. Jeffrey Epstein, rest in piss. Um, terrible work on his point. Um, the killer in 
the killing, um, the murderings, the terrorism that took place in Dayton, Ohio. Um, this guy is a member or the lead singer of a, a porno grind metal band. So I, I never heard of porno grind before, so I was intrigued. And I got to find out, you know, something about the porno grind. I couldn't find anything from his group, but I found that um, he did, however, like uh, this particular group by the name of, uh, the name of the group is Aborted Hitler Cop. Aborted Hitler Cop. And um, the, the album is Erection as the Animal Autopsy. Um, and I just wanted to read a, a lyric. I mean, they only repeat this one slogan, the whole song. Um, but the name of the song is um, Using Rape Babies as Riot Shields. Using Rape Babies as Riot Shields. Um, the, the, the song goes, um, Apocalyptic Battlefield, Rape Babies as Riot Shields. From the gaping more they bring, makeshift weapons made from limbs. Pathology of human war. London streets are paved with gore. Skies turn black and seas turn red. Won't stop till everybody's dead. And of course, they emphasize the dead, you know. Uh, I was totally amazed by this stuff. So I don't want to hear anything about hip-hop music ever again from white people. This is degrading and um, terrible. Um, and this form of rock, um, it's a lot of talks about rape and out of me and um you know um so got a bunch of gory porn and stuff playing in the background very interesting uh, all people who are listening to this music should be um put on that red flag list they don't deserve to have guns um the killer however um he had a kill list and a rape list I said, there's no more white supremacists than that, like a, a rape with one, one of the people that in his neighborhood or that went to school with him said, uh, yeah, his, my brother was on his kill list and I was on his rape list. It was a female. Um, you know, I, amazing. Um, so what they allow to walk around the public, uh, white people, that is. Um, and uh, on top of that, um, I, I don't blame um, Donald Trump for this, uh, these incidents, because um, mass killing has been happening in, in the United States of America for since the inception of the United States of America. It's standard operating procedure for white supremacy to exist. So um, there's no way in the world I can, you know, say um, that this is, you know, this one person. It's all his fault. You know, that's the way they're trying to position this whole thing. Oh, no way. You know, this is happening way before him. Uh, this is actually not that bad compared to some of the other things white people have done in this country. But, um, you know, tell Taylor how they're trying to position the conversation. Um, man, there was one more point I wanted to make about that incident, but it slipped my mind real quick. I didn't write it down. Um, you know, racism to me is the easiest thing to prove, but some people, you know, they have a hard time accepting it. Um, in my opinion, the worst acts of racism is when white people cheat 
Um, they already have a system. They made the rules. Everything is laid out how it's supposed to. And they still turn around and cheat. Um, what they did to the black guy brother named Rich Paul, um, creating this Rich Paul rule. And this is the NCAA, by the way. Uh, NCAA, who um, I believe two or three years ago, um, when the players were um, trying to be paid for their services to these um, universities that make millions off of them, they cited the 13th Amendment uh, and pretty much said that these people are slaves based off the fact they took the scholarship. Um, so, and, and with this being said, I just want everyone to remember Bob Costin, um, a dead white supremacist by the name of Bob Costin. Um, this NCAA rule, uh, for years, you know, all the agents in basketball, football, baseball were white people um, that were the ones that were making these deals for these black players. Um, happened that LeBron James met this young man at an airport where he became a star player and um, bought a, um, a retro football jersey from the guy. The guy was hustling football jerseys. Um, and either way, LeBron James befriended him and realized his brother was very intelligent and gave him an opportunity to be a part of his um, inner circle. And eventually this guy becomes his agent. He focused his Nike deals for him, focused over a billion dollars worth of deals for LeBron James, and other players started to go to him as well. So the NCAA, because of the success of this one black man, and remember the other large um, agency in sports right now is Rockefeller, which is owned by a black man by the name of Jay-Z, who I'm almost certain as well doesn't qualify with the new rule the NCAA put in that these agents must have a college degree. And they must go to Indianapolis every year to take a test that makes them qualify as an agent. Um, this brother doesn't have a college degree, but he's the most successful agent in the business right now. So they're totally exiting him out. And um, as well, I guess, uh, Mr. Sean Carter as well. Um, this reminds me, Gus, and I'm not trying to make a comparison, just the similarity of the rules where they would make black people take a test to be able to vote. You know, the law says you, you're able to vote, but, oh, no, we're going to have to change the rule here. In this one instance, and these people in this county have to take a test. You know, I think it's just um, just how the system works. But to me, it's like they're cheating, you know. Um, last thing I wanted to say, um, shutting down HN and all these other white supremacist sites is just a waste of time, all for show. Um, HN is on the surface web. You access that through Google, Yahoo, Bing, or whatever surface web interface you go through. Uh, when I say the surface web, like I just said, it's something that you access when you put in, you know, Internet Explorer or Google or whatever. You have two other webs that exist. You have the deep web and the dark web. Those two webs account for 96% of the web. The surface web that we all use is only 4% of the Internet. So you could have all, I mean, when you go to Tor or the Onion Router and look at the sites on the white supremacist sites on the dark web, man, they even have sites where they're hunting black people, literally killing black people, literally like, so, you know, you just pay your Bitcoin and go in there and look at them. But um, this is this is just for show. They're not telling you that these other sites exist, are they? But everyone knows that's one, you know, so. 
this terrible gust, and I'll be my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Thank you. It was not just a hit list. Hit list and a rape list. And I think that's so critical. Same thing I said yesterday during workplace racism. I said white people are not... They're not ignorant about white supremacy racism. I say that all the time. Uh, they're not ignorant about the shiftless, lazy people, white people on the job. They hired them. These are their homies and friends that they go out drinking with in many instances. Uh, and they're not ignorant uh, in many instances uh, about these white identity extremists, white terrorists who go out and commit uh, these acts. Uh, Dylan Roof. Uh, Timothy McVeigh, go right down the line. The shooter uh, in Ohio, hit list and the rape list. Uh, this was not something odd. This was not something bizarre. This was, again, white people. They know other white people uh, and all of the violent, psychotic things that they do, the drug use, all of that. They know other whites. They're not ignorant. Uh, the number again, 605 Six four, the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Gosh, uh, I just wanted to say I only brought up Bob Costas because we found out after he died, he only had a high school diploma, never went to college, and was telling us, you know, pretty much everything like he was an expert on the news all those years. Oh, I think it's uh, a plethora of individuals classified as white who do not. That's the whole cheating scandal, isn't it? I mean, the irony. I hope people have pointed that out. We just had within the last, what was that, two, three months or so? I don't even think it was three months ago. The whole big cheating scandal, as if we needed more. But all of that, these white people have faked all these credentials and cheated their way uh, into school, lying, master deceivers. And then, go, oh, no. You got to have a college degree. You can't be out here uh, brokering sports deals and be ignorant, ill-educated. Make sure you got your diploma from one of these vintage schools, maybe an Ivy League school. Make sure you got your diploma after all of these folks have just had to come. They even had some people who allegedly might have to do some prison time where they lie. I got a college degree, but man. I lied about this and lied about that. My gosh, I hope they don't go back and check those credentials too hard. Don't look at just I got my diplomacy. Isn't it pretty? That is what white supremacy racism is full of hypocrisy. That goes right with deception, but uh, hypocrisy. Uh, That's why you see all that this week. People crying uh, about violence uh, and what have you in these acts. I thought Dylan Roof just shot up that church. Uh, That was more recent than Michael Brown Jr. That was just four years ago. Uh, And in fact, uh, gun control in Ohio This is also five years since John Crawford was shot at the Walmart. We had the same thing five years ago at Walmart. He was shot, had, uh, it was a a child's gun. It wasn't even a real rifle that he was reportedly walking around with in the store. And the white male saw him and called the, oh my God, we got this terrorist Negro running through the Walmart and they came out and killed him. If you want a comparison contrast, there you go, Jonathan Crawford III. His name definitely should be uh, mentioned. They got Michael Brown Jr. in. Jonathan Crawford III. That was five years ago this time as well. 
uh, other folks' uh, comments, questions, suggestions they would like to share. Line should be open. Proceed. While folks are uh, spectating, there was so much uh, activity this week. I hope folks are pondering different things. If they have thoughts or, or questions they want to share. Iman DC, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, there was a question. It was asked right at the end of the broadcast last week uh, by Mr. Steele, uh, where I think you had said last week uh uh, a suggestion about black people using blowtorches to uh, melt ice. And Mr. Steele said, do you have a plan uh, about how that would be implemented? If white people do things to disrupt that activity, just how, how would all of that be done? Um, yeah, I don't have a, um, a lot of great answers for that. Um, but I would just say, I'm just talking about math. You know, this is just simple math. Ice melts. Um, so, but I don't really have um, a better answer. Sorry. No apologies needed. Just, I did remember the question was asked. It was just, it was right as last few minutes of the broadcast. So I did want to try to remember to get that in uh, this week. Grand. Uh, while other folks are getting their uh, questions and or comments for everything that went down the past week. Uh, let's see. The I did also think it was important. I think one of our listeners said, uh, Dr. Welsing made the comment, reading more important than watching television. I played that in the audio segments this week. Uh, one of our listeners uh, added in, writing is important as well. Dr. Welsing did some of that too. Reading and writing, extremely important for victims of white supremacy. Uh, Toni Morrison uh, editing and encouraging other black people to write. I thought that was so critical. Uh, Angela Davis talking about Toni Morrison uh, prompting her and saying, hey, you should write an autobiography uh, when she had just went through her big trial uh, and everything, death row trial. Uh, she's going through all of that and saying you should write your autobiography uh, and encouraging her to do so. And that's become uh, such an important book for so many uh, people. Uh, to address racism, white supremacy, and Angela Davis's doctor has gone on to write so many other uh, texts since then, uh, encouraging other black people to write, particularly if they are going to be writing constructive information about racism, white supremacy, and trying to solve that problem, encouraging other black people to write about constructive things, extremely important activity. Make sure I didn't lose sight of that. Uh, also, I did note, we read The Bluest Eye. Uh, Pecola Breedlove, the main female character, is raped by a black male, her father, no less. Uh, and I just started to think, wow, like out of the number of books that you probably would have to read in school or that many people have had to read in school over the years. Uh, Native Son by Richard Wright. That's uh, cowbell and features uh, raping black male. Kills a white woman. I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, Dr. Maya Angelou, the late, uh, we read uh, in the Cows Book Club 2014, the summer that she passed away, and Same Summer as Michael Brown Jr., is it? I think so. Yes, Same Summer as Michael Brown Jr. Uh, 
but a raping black male in that one as well. Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison. We read Cal's Book Club, my favorite book all time. Uh, raping black male in that one as well. Uh, rapes his own daughter. Got the same scenario. Uh, for colored girls who've considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. And Tazaki Shange, she passed away not too long ago. Uh, the the savage black male kills his own child in that one. Throws him off the balcony. Lewis Dive we already got. And uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Trial about raping black male. Lots of those uh, throughout the Academy. Lots of the, the celebrated American novels. Celebrated American. It seems to be a motif, if you want to bring in the literary phrases, uh, in American literature. Raping black males. That is the main plot. Raping. And then we got the new American classic, The Hate You Give. No raping black males. We do have uh, lots of gun-toting drug selling black fiends. We do have lots of that, even though I don't recall any black rapists per se in that book, but uh, other folks uh, dialed in. If you have comments, questions, thoughts to share, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Um, greetings, callers. Greetings, listeners. Um, greetings, Gus. Uh, thank you again for the platform. Um, there, there are a few things that uh, definitely came through this week with the shooting, obviously, uh, appreciated a lot of the, uh, Dr. Francis Crest Wilson, um, um, snippets there that I think are very important as far as understanding exactly why these occurrences keep happening. Um, I think we, we putting them up and, and letting people hear them is extremely important and especially during these times, because I think people's ear is a little bit more, um, inclined to hear exactly why these things are occurring. Um, Tony Morrison, a uh, great author. I've, I've read Beloved. I've also read Tar Baby. Um, I'd say Beloved is pretty, pretty little tough to read. Uh, I'm not speaking in regards to just um, the context of it, but the language as well was, was a little tough to read, but they're, they're both excellent books. Um, I haven't read The uh, Bluest Eyes, I just purchased it pretty much online when I was listening to this um, broadcast today. Um, and, I, and I found it very, very interesting as far as um, what most people have said as far as their uh, take on it. Um, also, uh, another thing noted, I, I sent you a link earlier today. It was a little bit late, but it was from the Young Turks in regards to what the uh, current so-called president is actually keeping the FBI monitoring. Um, and in the link, you'll find that it's a Young Turk speak about a leaked document. Um, and the document basically contains uh, information stating that black extremists are the most, um, are at the top of the list as far as being monitored and, put in, and as far as being put down, so to speak. I don't know if that's a metaphor, but I, I think, I don't think so in these times. Um, also, at the pretty much at the bottom of the list, if that much were white extremists, like they, they literally were kind of ambiguous as they were stating within the documentation. And um, the interesting thing about that, that video and that the, they spoke about and was that there was one particular black male that was actually um, brought up on charges as far as being a black extremist. And he was found on 
on a, a racist website as somebody that was threatening because he came out to protest the uh, gun violence, um, the violence, police, police brutality in his area. And in his area, it's an open carry area. So he was carrying his weapon unconcealed. So this Stormfront or whatever these other websites targeted him, the FBI followed through Stormfront and went to this man's house and actually arrested him and his 15-year-old son and had them outside freezing. And this man went to jail for five months because he had one gun that was unregistered, unfortunately. Um, but it was a, it's a terrible scenario, but just another depiction of racism, white supremacy as a structure and how no matter what rules may be put on the books or uh, put down in our so-called uh, country, none of them apply to us as far as that goes. Everything is completely the opposite. But it's just something I wanted to bring to the uh, attention of uh, most of the listeners as well as yourself. Um, also, what I found interesting was um, the democratic debates. Um, and this um, candidate, and she's a, a non-white female. Um, she's, uh, I believe her name is Tulsi Gabbadar. Um, I believe she's half Indian and, and half European. And basically, she was the most searched in Google during her debate. During that time frame, Google pulled her ad for candidacy so people couldn't search for her anymore during the actual debate. Um, obviously, a deliberate act of, of racism, white supremacy. They didn't do that for any of the other candidates. They never had that issue. But um, she actually was uh, is now in the process of suing Google to see if she could actually get something in um, some kind of retribution in regards to that. Uh, wish her luck in that regards. But um, that's pretty much uh, all I have. Um, thank you for your time and energy, and uh, good evening. Much obliged, uh, the Grand Sester, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing. I felt like uh, she had. Uh, phenomenal analysis uh, that could be very helpful, uh, providing context uh, for what transpired uh, over the past week. Sounds as if she could have been with us and uh, speaking directly uh, to what ha uh, what happened. Uh, I do uh, recommend. I think this is uh, in the word guide. I have to double check. I have mine here. Uh, I think Mr. Fuller does. Uh, encourage non-white people to not use the terms half-white, uh, that it suggests an incorrect way of thinking about uh, racial classifications. Uh, you cannot be uh, half-white, half-Indian, uh, either you're white or you are not. Uh, this is a non-white person. I know the longer way I would say it. This is a non-white person who has a white parent, non-white parent, so-called Indian parent, be something to that effect. Just words, Tony Morrison, words are very important. Uh, equally important, uh, the commentary uh, about who was listed. I have to double check the link that you forwarded, much obliged, uh, from the Young Turks about what, uh, or I guess where the primary focus 
time and energy in terms of resources with the FBI Justice Department, as they call it, uh, is supposed to be focused uh, on, once again, the black identity extremists, which, in my view, further supports what I've said the entire time we have been reading Gavin DeBecker's The Gift of Fear. We're almost done. Thursday might be the last session. We might have one more. Have to see. Uh, But what I've said the whole time, the primary thing, white genetic annihilation, Dr. Welsing, primary thing that the white collective fear ends up invariably being black people, non-white people. That's reflected in their uh, practices and policies at the Justice Department. All of this activity this week, who are we concerned about? Al Sharpton. That nigger O.J. Simpson on the loose. Raping niggers. Niggers in the Florida courthouse stealing copies. That's what we're worried about. What about all these white people running rampant? The Dylan Roofs and what have you running rampant, shooting up. Eh, we'll get to that later. Context of white supremacy. Uh, much obliged, sir. Other folks uh, have comments, suggestions, questions that they wanted to share. Hello. Uh, yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, does somebody else want to speak? Because I already spoke. Hello. Oh well. Um. Thank you for taking my call again. Um. I'm glad the caller brought up about the black identity extremist extremism again. Um. Because there was a congressional session. I don't know why I was watching it. But I did watch it, and I just found it again where the congressperson from Massachusetts, the new one, she asked about that, and they basically said it was fake. But now I guess it's real again. You know, they go back and forth with that. It was a congressional hearing, and they said it was fake. And now it's real again. And I do want to remind everybody, since colleges are starting up again, uh, they'll probably have some lectures on racism on racism and race and things like that in your community. If you want to go address, go to those to get another opportunity to practice asking questions. I found two already in my area, and I don't live in New York City or Los Angeles, something like that, so there could be more. So a good way to practice asking questions is through these seminars and lectures. They're usually um, open to the public if you go to local university and click on events. There's usually a list of events and there there will there's probably something there too that will talk about that. Thank you. Excellent suggestion. Uh absolutely. Uh the fall, September, all of that end of the month school will be kick jumping again. And absolutely. Uh in fact I was even thinking you could probably go to your local library and they normally have like a bulletin board or if you go to their website uh, for events, sometimes they'll have those type of things in the library as well. I know they do around here uh, where they might have a speaker or an author address, you know, something related to racism. Certainly, if you're near uh, a college or university, they are going to have a topic, probably several of them uh, addressing uh, gun violence white supremacist violence, racism, I am sure uh, they will have something, especially if you're in Texas or Ohio, uh, one of those regions. Oh, yeah. Uh, so absolutely. You can go. You can watch and observe uh, as retired firefighter did 
or you can go and have two or three questions ready to ask. Great opportunity to not be a spectator. And you can take your children with you. I always think that that is super uh, inspiring and helpful uh, when black children can see their parents, uh, particularly asking a white person a question or a group of white people a question or speaking publicly about the problem and doing so in a codified uh, strategic manner. I'll hush there. Can I be heard? Yes, but let me double check, see if other folks that we missed totally, if they, if we don't have folks, then we'll get you. Uh, Folks that we missed completely have hands up. Yeah. Hi. Can you hear me? Uh, Greetings, Irie. Yes, ma'am. Hi, everybody. Um, I wanted to just add a a few things. I missed the the summaries that you played, um, unfortunately. so I don't have anything to add about those, but it was three things this week that um, I wanted to share with everybody and, and maybe even see what some people think, see if I'm off. Um, the first thing is I went to a outdoor store um, to buy some personal protection and um, they actually had um, silencers on sale to the point that not only if you bought a a silencer, um, you would get, it was already a hundred off of this particular silencer. Um, But then they also gave another rebate with it. So I said to myself, okay, well then that means white people aren't serious about um, ending incorrectness um, with mass shootings of uh, even their population, so I know they're not serious and not going to be serious about ending racism, you know, not if they're willing to sacrifice themselves uh, that much to the point that they put it on sale. Um, uh, The next thing, there's uh, some type of pseudo-documentary, so it's a little bit of um, dramatization and some, um, uh, I guess, testimonial recall from people, uh, white people, in regard to uh, a secret organization, political organization they refer to as either the Fellowship or the Family or C Street, in which, um, you know, they're basically just, um, you know, dealing with presidents and advising them and foreign diplomats and other political leaders. And what I found really, really atrocious was um, someone mentioned that uh, a leader of the country of Chad um, wanted to meet with the individuals uh, or the individual at the top, Dave Cole, C-O-E, for some type of, I don't know what he was seeking out, but I think it was a vac- an act of either desperation or selfishness. I don't know. They didn't say what, but he was a, the leader of Chad, and they told him that it cost 250000 to meet with Dave Cole, and it was paid, and I was like, my God, um, how sad is this? We have non-white black people paying to be predated by uh, racist, not racist, but uh, white supremacists. Um, in nice clothing. Um, and then the, the last thing I wanted to 
share is um, I know Thomas in New York keeps up a lot with um, AI and, um, you know, augmented and um, artificial. But I'm, I think I'm noticing something in regard to um, technology and or maybe not so much technology, but space, outer space. Um, there were and are going to be a couple of what they call near-miss asteroids um, during the duration of the, the year. Um, there was an asteroid that just hit Jupiter that no one saw on the way to Jupiter, just like they didn't notice until maybe a week out, um, an asteroid named 2019 OK, um, and that it was, they basically dubbed it uh, a city killer. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, I'm trying to do some research. There are a lot of meteor showers and asteroid showers coming up that they said shouldn't be threatening, but then there are still meteors and asteroids that are going to be coming close by. Some of them are going to be kind of small, but there are a couple that are quite large, and I'm actually kind of speculating maybe there's, you know, um, something happened something happened in, in space where there's debris coming our way um, and they're not saying anything or... I know about 10 years ago, I remember uh, people playing around with the idea of um, NASA or other space agencies trying to catch an asteroid. So I'm also wondering, like, have they gotten sophisticated enough where they're actually, you know, finding a way to attract asteroids some kind of way? I know it, it seems a little wild, but I just don't know because I don't trust these people and, you know, with they, you know, they're doing all the stuff with God particles and splitting subatoms and you know, et cetera, et cetera. I just wouldn't put anything past them at this point, and I'm just really wondering what the existential dangers are. Um, not saying that we can fully prepare for an asteroid or a comet, you know, hitting into Earth, especially if we're located in the um, in the uh, the epicenter of it, but I'm just wondering, like, what was going on, and it's just so it's it's so funny that all this stuff is happening at the same time while they're continually showcasing non-white people, you know, being incorrect sexually or, you know, some some other filibuster at the time that is just really, you know, causing further confusion and delay to possible processes we need to take for uh, survival in the event that we can survive. And thank you, everyone. I'll mute my line. Thank you, firefighters, for letting me go. Much obliged, ma'am. Uh, learn a little bit about everything. <clears throat> that is what uh, Mr. Neely Fuller Jr. Uh, encourages. And I've long thought that is a reason to go up uh, to try to, as promptly as we can, go about the business of solving this problem. Uh, because when the people who are in charge have more power than you, classified as white, are hostile to you and deceptive, who knows? Uh, as you said, what's happening uh, on the planet when you're in a position where you have less information, less power, less resources, it puts you at a super 
disadvantage. Uh, that alone is a reason to get this problem solved uh, immediately. The universe is enormous, uh, and we should be trying to learn as much as we can about everything. Be knowledgeable about that, too. Uh, is anybody we missed totally? Anybody who has a hand up that we did not hear from at all? Uh, excuse me, Gus. Uh, did we uh, hear? Just, just wanted to guess. Uh, you heard from me already. I just wanted to get the. Uh, I didn't get the info uh, updated again on your PayPal. I, I wasn't sure what that was. Can you reiterate that to me? Yes, sir. It's uh, linked on uh, Facebook. It's linked at SoundCloud. Uh, it should be PayPal. That let me make sure I'm giving out the correct info. Uh, let's see. I'll give it out in one second. I'll make sure I read it and and in five seconds. Retired firefighter, or is anybody we missed? Let's do it that way. Anybody we missed totally? Have commentary. May have you heard? Uh, greetings, caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, I wanted to start out with, because I was looking over my notes. Um, I think it was the black male that was arrested. Uh, they said that it looked like it was an image from 1920 or what? Uh, and they were trying to excuse why they mistreated them the way that they did. Um, and instead of calling it race white supremacy, they said it was an act of dehumanization. Uh, the segment on, they was talking about the social media and the term, a whole canon. Like, uh, I guess that's related to weaponry, like the canon or whatever, a whole canon of white supremacist literature. And the term extremism scholars were used with or was used. I had never heard of that term before. And the lady made a comparison with uh, Islamic extremists to try to equate that to um, what they call white terrorism, but they've been using the term domestic terrorism or domestic terror. And I noticed white nationalism, white supremacy. A lot of those terms were used in the week, in the past couple of days, but it seems like it's, it, it's not being used in sense. Like a uh, retired firefighter mentioned, globalism. Um, it's only fragments in a small way. Like even the president once asked about it, he said, oh, well, I don't consider it a problem. Uh, it's just a small people, and it's really no big deal, but yet he never really laughed on what that is and goes off to blame of mental illness and that was a term that was used uh, when I was interviewing the person down in uh, El Paso where uh, I think the president was quoted as saying mental illness and hate not the gun or something to that effect and it seemed like he tried to give some pushback on why I guess he was trying to, uh, I guess, connect the uh, the white terrorism to the rhetoric, I guess, that he's been using. And he says, you know, come on, you know, he 
<laughs> he didn't put the the gun in his hand or he didn't uh make him drive all the way uh to El Paso. And I guess he I guess uh was making her point against what he said. Um but yeah, I just wanted to really point that out on how they once again are uh trying to make it seem like, well, we're gonna use the Democrat and Republican way of doing it. I guess, you know, that seems to be the proverbial way uh, that they're approaching it when talking about white supremacy. And they have one network that's more in support of what's being done. And then you have other news networks that'll have people call the president a white supremacist. And that's, I think that's, that's doing a lot of damage, uh, especially for people who are more confused about racism. Uh, and that's all I have for now. Thanks for allowing me to share. Much obliged for uh, dialing in. Thank you for the commentary. I definitely appreciate the uh, the rhetoric uh, and the different words that people have used uh, over the past week or so, because sometimes they have said white nativist, I think was one that I heard, too. I don't even hear that word used very frequently. White nativist. Uh, I heard that one used instead of white supremacist. Uh, just paying attention to what words are used. Uh, even in the past week when uh, President Trump, when he made his comments about the uh, saying we have to be against racism and all the rest of it, I even stopped and thought, wow. Now, he's mentioned white or you said the words white supremacy. I don't even think President Obama was allowed to say white supremacy in the eight years that he was in the White House. Do you all anybody remember President Obama ever saying white supremacy while he was uh, in office? I don't think so. No, sir. I was, I didn't, you know, go exhaustively, but I could, I think I would have, that would have been a sound clip. If he had ever said that while he was in office, I think that would have been a cow's sound clip. I don't ever remember him using that term. They, well, I, Negro, you can sit here, but you had better not. Never. I think he said racism and some other ones, but, hmm. Uh, retired firefighter, thank you for your patience. Yes, sir. Uh, this basis for everybody. Uh, I uh, and, and it, it goes along with what was just talked about. You know, the rhetoric this week I thought was very interesting. Uh, and one combination word in particular, white nationalists. I had been hearing that term all during the week, but I did not hear a uh, definition of the term white nationalist that made any, I don't, I don't remember even anybody attempting to state a meaning, let alone uh, one that made any sense. Uh, does anybody have any comments on it uh, or, or, and, or have they heard of the term, the, the term heard this week. And so, uh, you know, if you know, want to volunteer to give a meaning for it for myself, uh, you can, uh, I, my word guide is, is in, is in, is in my vehicle outside. I don't feel like going out and getting it. Uh, I don't know for sure if Mr. Fuller has it in it because the term white is so, is so vast 
that that he probably doesn't have enough room to have white nationalists in there. I I don't know for sure if it's in there or not. But uh, I'll uh, mute my line and listen if someone has any uh, comments or or meaning for it, uh, that sort of thing. Thank you. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Um, well, based on the logic I'm ascertaining, uh, white nationalists are people who self-classify as white that would like the so-called United States of America to be a nation that is majority white in its um, demographic, along with uh, European or uh, American Anglo-Saxon or American European uh, traditions, mindsets, cultures, and values. So, um, yeah, that's that's what I think. I could be incorrect. Uh, let's see. Okay. Mr. Fuller does have a white nation in the word guide. He does not have white nationalists in there. Um, the definition I can read for uh, white Let's see, white nation is, use this term to apply to any one or more white persons who practice white supremacy racism, to the sum total of all speech and action by those white persons who practice white supremacy in any one or more areas of activity and or three white supremacists collectively. So I think that would apply to white nationalists, white nation, white nationalists. Uh, That is our three hours uh, for this week. I hope it has been worthy of your time and energy. Uh, If anything, I would say uh, this week is indicative of what you can expect in a system of white supremacy that demands violence. Uh, I would encourage folks to go back. Dr. Welsing had a a segment, I believe in 2012. This was uh, before President Obama even had won re-election. And she was talking about the reconstruction of white supremacy and saying that she thought this sort of thing would be happening. Lots more direct uh, acts of violence and terrorism uh, explicitly being motivated by uh, white supremacy, racism, if not outright targeting black and non-white people. She thought there would be more of this sort of violence as the system of white supremacy uh, recycles. Go back in the archives. You can hear her uh, discuss it in details. also have a report on academia.edu. Uh, that goes back over this as well in her prediction for President Trump winning the election. Uh, We'll have more details uh, or the final details. I think everything is pretty much together. Uh, I'll have the report written up with all of the details for the Florida yoga retreat for this December. Uh, The meals, all of that should be able to share soon. Hopefully folks will be down to participate this coming December. Much obliged for folks' participation. I hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Uh, Again, sobriety would be best. This week, any week under the system of white supremacy, it is generally best uh, to be able to be thinking uh, as well as we can. You never know when you might have to make uh, life-saving decisions uh, in a potentially fatal fatal encounter or, you know, you have no idea what could be happening. Uh, you want to be able to make logical decisions, great decisions, be arrest, uh, be abreast uh, of your surroundings and potential hazards. Uh, I think being sober would be best for that. 
in addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger, or driver. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no particularly if we are behind the wheel let's be off the cell phones again minimize contact with race soldiers uh try to take every opportunity that we can to uh keep ourselves as safe as possible under conditions dominated by white terrorism with that creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.